Hello, this is Coach Aaron Saft in the MR Running Pains podcast. I have a very long episode today. I just want to get backlogged on recordings and I wanted to give these folks their due since they were so kind to come onto my podcast and, and record with me. Um, and since I have some, some other recordings that are coming up. So uh, today we're going to talk with Canyon and Forest Woodward. They have a new film coming out called Rural Runners. Actually, it is out, and I will put the link in the show notes uh, for the film so you can check it out. Um, it is a mix of uh, Canyon's running. Uh, Canyon's been doing amazing. He's a, a previous guest on this podcast, uh, but he did a fantastic. I think he was ninth American at UTMB, uh, set the FKTs on the Art Lobe and the uh, SCAR runs, uh, just really popping off some amazing performances. I watched him this past weekend at the shut-in where he took second place overall. So just a, a great range uh, for Canyon. He's just uh, just really performing well these days. So, uh, But we're going to talk about their film and, uh, and, uh, and Canyon's experience being a uh, political manager for his friend, uh, Chloe Maxim, uh, which is just incredible. The film is just wonderful. I uh, love seeing the passion that Chloe displays and, and how they work together to make this uh, a reality. So uh, that will be the first discussion. The second discussion I have is with Will Weidman. Uh, Will is uh, he's another um, running and ultra running coach, uh, but the guy has just had a tremendous year placing second at Hellbender uh, as well as um, being the second American at the Tour de Gens, uh 200-plus mile race in the uh the italian alps uh sounds like an amazing event if i were to do another 200 it would be the tour de Gens. so i loved hearing will's story uh fun 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 story you know to hear here so uh, we're gonna go through that so uh <laughs> stay tuned for all of that um it, you know if you make it through both because like i said this is gonna be a long episode uh i'm gonna kind of do all of my uh housekeeping uh, at the beginning of the episode here. So uh, when we finish up with Will's um, conversation, that will be the end of the episode. Uh, but wow, what a, um, what a weekend. I got to go out and watch Shut In. Um, I had nine athletes racing, all nine finished, which is awesome. I love seeing all of them come across the finish line. I didn't get to see them quite fin- go across the finish line. Um, went to two different points on the course and then got up to the finish. Um, but I, you know, I watched um, all of my runners come through. 151, which uh, typically in a typical year uh, is the last section of shut-in before the finish. Uh, in, in, in this case, it was the last aid station before the finish, but they had to finish in another location past uh, the normal location which is the pisca parking lot they had to keep going uh for an additional uh, mile and a half two miles to the uh to the the finish line for this year but uh it was a rainy day uh the leaves were down so it made for for slower conditions but they still ran super well um so super stoked it was so fun to see so many folks that i know uh to watch so many people um you know run this race it is a, a local kind of uh, historical treasure that we have here in Western North Carolina. Uh, Traditionally, it's 17.6 miles with 5,000 feet of gain, 2,000 feet of loss. Uh, A great mountain race, really fun. Uh, So seeing so many people that I know and getting to talk to them. um, Unfortunately, I am still in a walking boot. Uh, My ankle, I go for x-rays actually 
uh, as you're probably listening to this, I might be in the doctor's office getting uh, x-rays to see what's going on with my ankle. After the third ankle roll, I knew something was wrong, uh, possible stress fracture, stress reaction. Not sure we're going to go in tomorrow and, and hopefully get some, some answers because I'm still in pain here uh, a little over two weeks after um, having rolled it for the third time. So knowing I have to rehab it, I understand that, uh, but it's just painful to put extensive pressure on it. So um, waiting to get some solutions. Anyhow, um, yeah, tremendous job watching those guys. I uh, actually had 24 athletes racing last weekend. It was incredible. What a busy weekend. So much fun. Uh, I got to watch the New York City Marathon. Uh, that's that, you know, growing up about 90 minutes from the start line. That race always has a special place in my heart, one that I hope to race eventually. Uh, I've, I've entered the lottery, but have not had the, uh, the luck of getting drawn yet. So continue to uh, try to get into that one. Definitely on my bucket list. Um, but, um, yeah, so, <laughs> um, got to register for the Western States. That was really exciting. I got my, uh, my invitation to register. So now registered for Western States. So hoping to get through this, this ankle injury and, uh, and get back to being able to, to run again. Um, so excited, excited for all that. Um, I've had, man, uh, you know, a ton of athletes started to reach out about coaching for next year. So, uh, if you are interested um, please reach out, even if it's not to start immediately, just to kind of reserve a spot because things are filling up quickly, uh, which is awesome. I, I love that folks are reaching out and thinking about next year already. Um, yeah, it's you know I've had folks reach out about uh, potential coaching for for Umstead, uh, so very cool. Uh, looks like Hellbender has their date. Uh, just so everybody knows, I am no longer affiliated with Hellbender. I'm still getting questions about Hellbender, obviously because. You know, I have been involved in it for you know since the beginning, <laughs> um, but I am no longer involved. I you know I'm not where you direct your questions. Uh, Corey Alexander is the new race director, so if you have questions about Hellbender, you need to direct them over to him. I I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I, I I'm not involved at any capacity. So um, my uh, my apologies. You know, if if I write you back and say I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not the the contact. But I really I don't know what's going on over there. So I sorry. Uh, just please reach out to Corey. Um, and uh, so yeah, uh, with uh, Hellbender announcing their date, um, I coached I think twelve athletes to Hellbender last year. Um, and so you know, if you're interested in in that conversation or a, any conversation about coaching, uh, I, I don't mean to make it sound like I only coach folks to hundred miles. Um, I have athletes that do five k. <laughs> so and I have uh, athletes that do run walk. Uh, I'm here for any athlete, any runner that wants to uh, kind of have some structure, some guidance. Uh, you know, you have questions, you want to learn about training. Uh, that's that's what I'm here for. Um, love answering those questions. Love having those dialogues. Uh, and you know, as I always say, if if I'm not the right coach for you, uh, may have somebody that you know perhaps is. So, uh, but yeah, reach out for coaching. My contact in the show notes. Um, with that said, uh, the newsletter just came out. So November newsletter is out. It is live. It is on my website. You go to the connect with me page and all of the old newsletters are archived there. You can also subscribe to the newsletter. So newsletter comes out once a month, try to jam pack it full of information, articles, reviews. Um, I finally finished my conclusion to the Bigfoot 200. So there's a three part series on the Bigfoot 200, which comes off my blog. The blog is also linked in there. <laughs> I know blogs aren't as popular these days, but uh, it's a great place for me to recount my 
my stories and, and have that kind of uh, archive for myself. Um, but so yeah, the conclusion of the Bigfoot 200, um, it's, uh, it's three different parts on the blog. Uh, whew, when I, when I typed it up, I think it was 15 pages total on a word doc. So, um, just, you know, I just had so many memories that kept flooding back and then I would think of something and go back and add. So, um, lots, yeah, lots to, uh, lots to include, um, in that race recap. So, um, so that's out. That's in the third part is in the, uh, um, is in the newsletter. Uh, I, you know, talk about shoes. I talk about gear. I talk about modifications to gear. Uh, you know, this month I, uh, I I talked about the new 25, the Nightcore new 25 headlamp. Um, my friend Sheridan, you know, gave me this this great video to to watch to uh, to take off the the regular headband that comes with it because the headband weighs is almost as much, if not more, than the actual uh, casing, the body of the the light itself. So. Uh, taking that off and attaching shock cord, it makes the light super, super easy. So um, I include the YouTube video that he sent me and, and you know, talk about, um, you know, that uh, the benefits of that headlamp and, you know, how it can be used. Uh, also talk about, um, I, I did a review on the Ultra Spire Bronco Vest. Um, really like the pack, but I had this really annoying flap that's on the back of the vest. Uh, that I, I folded down and had my mom sew for me so that it doesn't hit the back of my neck. Just, you know, these little modifications that I make to the gear. Um, same thing with the Ultra Mont Blanc. Uh, the Ultra Mont Blanc, you know, sometimes I wish the midfoot was a little tighter. So um, actually, um, Jeff Browning, <laughs> Bronco Billy, posted a uh, Facebook video, which I think he uh, he had to take down because Ultra wasn't a fan of the fact that probably that he had to modify his shoe. Um, but he, he used an awe to create another eyelet uh so another hole for his laces that helps secure up so I, I put that in there in a picture with you know where i put the holes with the uh with the awe to help make the shoe a bit snugger so you know just things like that they're in the newsletter um so uh you know and i'm always up for hearing for you things you want to hear about uh, or uh, or learn about so you know let me know same thing here with the podcast um i've, I've got um um, uh, you know, podcast recording coming up with, uh, with the mountain masochist, uh, winner. It sounds like he's going to be on another podcast, but I'm interested to hear, uh, I love the, uh, the lust series, the Lynchburg ultra series, uh, as well as the B series up there in Virginia. You know, those races, uh, include David Horton and, um, and Clark, uh, Zealand's, uh, races. So, um, we're going to talk and uh, hear about it. Cause it sounds like, you know, there was a lot that went down during that race. Uh, especially it didn't go, you know, Justin's way, but, uh, we're going to hear from Justin and hear his story and hear how he uh, came away with the win. So that, you know, that episode is going to be coming up. Um, indoor track has started, started working with the kids. Uh, it's a little bit crazy right now because, uh, I'm, I'm the only coach there till about four thirty. So I'm working with every single event, sprints, uh, throws, jumps, uh, distance. It's, you know, but I love it. I absolutely love it. It just ignites my passion, uh, makes me want to run. So, um, just, I'm excited, super excited. It's, it's a great time to be, uh, to be involved with these kids and, uh, and hoping, you know, to get them to, uh, to the nationals. Uh, I want to see them compete at nationals and, and have some all Americans. So, uh, I'm excited that we have that potential on our team. Um, what else? Uh, my goodness. Uh, thinking about other things here. Um, Oh gosh, um, had something else on my mind, but uh, gosh, that's that's probably enough. <laughs> We've uh, I've gone uh, long enough here in the intro, so just want to give a quick 
Uh, thank you again to my Patreons, uh, all my Patreon supporters. Uh, they're you know, fantabulous, helping me keep doing this. Um, so thank you for their support. Colin Hicks, Leah Lanier, Teresa Bowser, Carolyn Morris-Throw, uh, Mike Sears, Julia Jordan, Nicole Burnham, Peter Kao, uh, Will Weidman, Philip Taylor, Martin Thorne, Nancy Lewis, Victor Dostrow, uh, Kendall Weaver, Nate Heaslip, Austin Elder, and Tori Greaves. I want to thank all of them once again for their support here uh, it's fantastic. Uh, I've, I've released one private Patreon episode. I'm actually going to be recording another one private, epi- uh, private episode for my Patreon supporters. And those are direct questions coming from them. Uh, I'm expounding on questions that they have. So I'm um, trying to add value to uh, their Patreon support dollars. I sincerely appreciate them. If you can support at any level, dollar a month, whatever it may be, if you're finding value and enjoying these, uh, I really appreciate the support. It helps me continue the newsletter. It helps me continue this. It helps me to put out YouTube videos. Uh, yeah, so it goes to a lot. Uh, it really helps me support this work and, and continuing it. So if you can support at any level, I sincerely appreciate that. And as other podcasts say, if you can't, I understand. I get it. You know, financial commitment's tough sometimes. So uh, if you can just write a review or share the podcast so others can find it and hear it, it just helps spread the word about the podcast. So thank you all for all your support in whichever way you can do so. All right, let's get into the interviews. As I said, we're going to start with Forrest and Canyon Woodward, and then uh, I'll, I'll kind of uh, take a break and, and introduce the next part, which uh, we will get into with Will Weidman, again, about the Tour de Jantes. So I uh, hope you enjoy this episode. I love talking to these guys, um, all three of them, great human beings. So uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you soon. All right, I have to th- with me Forrest and Canyon Woodward. How are you fellas doing? We're doing great. It's really great to be here with you, Aaron. Absolutely. It's been a while since I've seen Forrest. Um, Not that I I can never see Canyon too much, but um, (laughs) it's awesome. I want to kind of start. Listeners have met Forrest previously, I'm assuming Canyon previously, but Forrest, um, let's give a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah. Um, well, like Canyon, my brother here, uh, I grew up in Western North Carolina, um, and, uh, went to school in Chapel Hill, uh, and did my undergraduate there. And, uh, I have spent the last 15 years working in the outdoor industry, making, um, films and doing photo work, creative work for different brands in the outdoor space and different, um, editorial outlets as well. And yeah, a lot of my time that, you know, my draw to that was getting to spend a lot of time outside with friends and beautiful places and a lot of time in the mountains. And, um, yeah, I, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably a good place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Uh, what did you study at Chapel Hill? Uh, I majored in sociology and Spanish over there. All Um, right. Yeah, nothing to do with photography, really. <laughs> how did how did the photography piece of this and uh, you know obviously film come into play? Yeah, um, well, our father is a photographer and sort of a, a, you know serious hobbyist photographer. So we grew up with a dark room in the basement that we you know could go down and and you know putz around in. And so I was introduced to it early and just loved it and. Um, and I kind of kept doing it uh, in the summers through through college, kept making photographs and going out to this school in Montana where I would take classes and then later teach. And so I just kind of had an organic introduction to it. And then when I was finishing school, I um, 
uh, had some good friends who were really into rock climbing and, um, and they were like, well, you know, we'll, we'll put you on a rope and drag you up here and you can take some great <laughs> pictures. And, um, the rest was kind of history. I spent, you know, the next 15 years doing a lot of climbing, um, related photography. And then that just, uh, you know, has kind of evolved into a pretty broad set of interests <laughs> in outdoors and just a, you know, a great, it's a small community still and, um, a great one to be a part of. And so I, my photographic and film work just sort of evolved naturally from the community and from the interests and, and trips that we were going out on. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, why don't you touch on a few of the films that you have done? Um, you know, this, this audience is obviously going to be some predominantly runners. So um, what are some of the ones that you've, you've done? Yeah. A lot of the films that I've worked on in the past um, handful of years have been uh, river, river related, whitewater related films. So um, have done three different films down in or around the grand Canyon. Um, the first, first one, you know, that, that was kind of a, a, uh, major turning point or, or inflection point of of getting really interested in filmmaking was making a film with our dad um doing a 28 day trip uh through the grand canyon um in november and december of uh, i guess that was 2013 and um so that was a you know it was a it was a river film and many of my films are, are somewhat sports adjacent adjacent but they're also um, just sort of human, human story films and, um, you know, really focus on, um, sort of the emotional elements that drive us and, and connect us to each other and to place. And, um, so that current kind of runs, runs through the films, whether it's, uh, whitewater films or, or climbing films or trail now trail running films. That yeah. one's called yeah. the important places, uh, the important places, uh, it takes place in the Grand Canyon and the, only watch it with a big box of tissues if you're ready for a cry, but it's so good. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like I, I didn't say anything yet about um, this film here, Rural Runners. And I mean, I, I cried four times. <laughs> it's the, I mean, you know, and we'll talk about it. The passion that, that Chloe displays and the amount of support and love that you show Canyon. It really touched me. Um, you know, you guys captured an essence that's rarely seen or touched on in film, you know, especially the, uh, the emotion of what goes into, you know, politics, which is amazing. You know, I, I, it's, it's hard to, to show passion and it's evidence. I mean, Chloe is an amazing human and uh, we'll definitely talk about that, but, um, Kenny, why don't you, uh, just give us a cliff notes, uh, <laughs> version of yourself. Uh, you've got a, a lot, you know, obviously uh, that you can say as well. Um, your brother has a, a wealth of <laughs> experiences and such, but why don't you give us the, the cliff notes version of you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Youngest, youngest of a bunch of kids just running around in their footsteps, <laughs> uh, having a great time. <laughs> uh, we were we were all homeschooled growing up which was an awesome part of childhood in my opinion big a big focus on the just like getting outdoors and learning from from being out there and from experiential education um and yeah got to go to harvard for college which is where i met chloe who um who you just mentioned who's who's one of my best friends and co-conspirators and in, in <laughs> So much of my work um and she 
started the fossil fuel investment campaign at Harvard and I got to co-coordinate that with her. Um, and then she moved back to her small town in Maine um, in, after college and decided to run for state house there um, in this super, super conservative rural district, um, 16 point Republican advantage. And, you know, we're, we're a couple of, of young, pretty progressive climate activists. Um, and she managed to, to win, which was awesome. And then um, that snowballed into, into us just diving really deep into rural politics and, <laughs> and how to, how to, yeah, how to, you know, connect on a more human level. Um, you know, politics is so, has gotten really, really divisive in the past, you know, six years, especially seven years. And so much of our work going into the community with a lot of folks who think a lot differently than us was, was focusing on how to bridge that divide and have, you know, just show up as neighbors, as humans, um, and have positive, positive interactions and see what common ground and common values we could find. Absolutely. I mean, um, rural runners is the name of the film again. And, um, you know, the, the, the focus is on Chloe Maxim, um, who, uh, it was the youngest, um, youngest person to be elected in the United States, correct for, uh, her position in the, is that right? Yeah. Youngest, um, female Senator in Maine's history. That's yeah. incredible. Incredible. Um, well, we're going to, we're going to talk about the film and Chloe and everything. Um, just, um, a little bit more on you two. Um, uh, you know, obviously I've had, um, dealings and, and experiences with, with both of you, um, talk about your relationship because you have a wonderful love and not only just between the two of you, but amongst your family. So talk about that relationship and how it, it kind of, uh, helped keep this film cohesive and, you know, and help bring it together. Heck yeah. I mean, um, I love that question. Thank you. Thanks for reflecting, reflecting that back. Um, such, yeah, I think the love of, of our family and, and each other has been the bedrock for so much of, of my life, um, both, both in running and outdoors and in, in, you know, jumping off into organizing pursuits. Um, Force and I got to train for our first hundred miler and run it together um, back in, in 2018, which was such a special experience. Um, and, um, you know, huge credit to you for, for building the, building the access points, the trail running in in the mountains, you know, we've, we've done a lot of gotten to do a lot of your races, Fontandango back in the day and Frosty yep. Foot a handful of times when you're running it and Hellbender. Yep. Um, and, and yeah, you, I think you coached each of us and <laughs> yep. getting into it and digging our teeth into it. And, um, yeah. 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 I will say coached both of us with more success for more natural aptitude with one of us. No, <laughs> here, but no, um, yeah, it was the the family element um and and just sort of the getting to grow up with a family that really prioritized um spending quality time together. I think we were really lucky to 
have um, parents who oriented a lot of their lives around um, creating time and space for all of us to explore together and um, on our own in the outdoors and feel really supported in that. And I think that there, you know, is a, the way that they modeled that is, is sort of a creative way of living. And, um, and I think that overlaps into, you know, into the realm of starting to make films for me, um, you know, thinking some of what was interesting to me is just like the creativity it takes to open different chapters of your life or to, to find different paths in life. And so I was drawn to really just genuinely interested, um, in what Canyon and Chloe were doing, uh, when they were in school. And I loved, you know, hearing their stories when we get together over the holidays and, and going up to visit them and stuff. And so I, I kind of started working on this film, um, you know, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. Um, and just coming from that place of curiosity and, and also just selfishly loving an excuse to go spend time with my brother and with Chloe and, um, and, and just kind of following the threads, not knowing where it would go, go, but, um, yeah, in it, trusting that, uh, that a, what they were doing was really interesting and a story that was worth telling. And also that there's something unique about getting to tell stories that are really close to you. Um, you know, a lot of my work is, is, you know, maybe showing up and doing things for, um, for different companies or, or telling very specific stories, but to get to sort of follow a documentary story of, uh, of someone, of a couple of people you really care about and have great access to is a real um, unique gift to get to get to experience. So, yeah. Was, was this your first foray in like something of this nature, like a documentary as well as politics? Um, I've, I've worked on a few different documentary films before, um, but this was my first time, yeah, uh, kind of directing and, and also, yeah, diving into the realm of politics. I've pretty steered pretty clear of that all through my 20s, uh, but yeah, it was, I, I found an entry point uh, in their story that I thought would, was relatable and, and inspiring to me, and I hoped it would be for other people too, so it kind of yeah, drew me that, in. That was evident. Um, and you know, I, you're, I'm in the same boat. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not heavy into politics, but, um, you know, I, it, it raised a lot of questions for me, which, you know, I hope to get into in, in this interview of, of politics and involvement and what can we do kind of thing. But, um, uh, you know, as, as I said, um, Chloe, who this is about, um, let's take a step back and just talk about Chloe for a minute. So Canyon, can you kind of just give us Chloe's background and, and, you know, how this all came about. So we understand kind of the, the central character. Totally. Yeah. So, so Chloe, um, was, was raised in rural Maine, um, on her family's farm there. And, you know, she was super active, pretty much like, out of the womb it seems like um, she was you know she was raising hell as like a 12 year old 14 year old um she got she got really into some environmental activism around a, a huge development project of the main north woods which is um which is just a huge huge undeveloped area that um that developers were were trying to come into um and then that snowballed into you know, more climate activism through high school and then um, getting really involved in the 
Keystone XL pipeline fight, and then the fossil fuel divestment campaign in college, um, which eventually succeeded in getting Harvard to take its um, 40 plus billion dollar endowment out of fossil fuel companies, which was a really huge step. Um, and yeah, she has just a tremendous, tremendous love for home, for where she came from. I think a really powerfully rooted sense of place there. And that, you know, day she graduated, she loaded up her, her dad's pickup truck and moved, moved right back to, to Maine and um, has been, you know, fighting the good fight there ever since. Which is incredible that, you know, I mean, at her age to think about, you know, running, you know, for, for office, um, but, you know, and then you, I mean, we hadn't even mentioned that you were her campaign manager, um, which is incredible. Cause you know, when we watched the film, you, you didn't have any experience with running a campaign. So why don't you talk about that for a moment and what that entailed and you know, how that came about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, she was, I, let's see, I think we were both 25 when she decided to run for office. I was 24, maybe. Um, she, she had just been down to visit me in North Carolina, like a couple of weeks before she decided. I remember her talking about, you know, like just kind of casually, she was like, yeah, you know, like maybe we should think about like running for office at some point, you know, that's like one of the biggest ways that we can make change. And I was like, yeah, you know, like good idea, but like, we're really young, like maybe a few cycles <laughs> down the, down the road. Um, <laughs> but she just had such a tremendous way of, of, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I think about her decision to run for office at 25, her decision to start the fossil fuel divestment campaign. She just has such vision and boldness for just like imagining the way that things could be and committing to it so hard and going for it. And, <laughs> um, and then, and then roping, roping folks in to, to help make it happen, which I feel, feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to be, be part of that journey with her. Um, and yeah, you know, I had, I think, yeah, for my part, I had also shied away from politics largely growing up, um, you know, had a bit of an environmental ethic baked in from our upbringing for sure. But electoral politics to me was always super repulsive. Um, I didn't even vote in the midterms in 2014. Um, but even though I was like really deep into climate organizing at that point, and I think it was really through the climate work um, on the fossil fuel investment campaign that my realization of the importance of politics came about that, you know, we were building this really big movement all across the United States and across the world um, around climate, but we weren't passing any kind of legislation to the scale that it would take to address the climate crisis. And that was because of politics um, and the people that we have in the office. And so, yeah, I graduated in 2015, which was right around when Bernie had announced his campaign and I got to work on, on Bernie's campaign and then for a local state Senate candidate back, um, back home in the mountains in 2016. And then, um, yeah, took those limited experiences on to 
to manage Chloe's two campaigns. That's awesome. And so Forrest, you went up to Maine on multiple occasions for, for filming. Um, <laughs> and part of the film, it, it you guys recorded going door to door um, and, and knocking on doors. From your perspective, um, what was that like? <laughs> um, I, I'd have been nervous, you know, anytime they walked up to a door, just, you know, even if I was behind the camera. So talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, you get to spend a lot of time hiding behind a camera, seeing other people do hard things. Um, so, so there definitely was a feeling of like, well, I'm not in the hottest seat, you know, I'm sure. not having a knock sure. door, but um, seeing that process was, um, you know, I would get nervous for them going up to each door and, and wondering what the response would be. And also there was a sense of like, well, what, what else, like, what, what, what else do you guys like where this, but there must be something more. And there, there are a lot of other things that they did, but knocking doors and having conversations with people and, and putting in that FaceTime really was just a huge part of, um, and more than FaceTime of, of real conversation and, and listening was a huge part of their campaign. And so it was really interesting to see that, um, just sort of, human politics, person to person politics. And um, we didn't get to capture a lot of that in, on film because of just the um, issues of privacy and, and not, um, sure. you know, sticking a camera in folks face, but it was a, it was an interesting thing to, to get to see and learn and then see the, see the results of and see the way that, um, you know, uh, that, that folks showed up for them. For sure. No, I mean, that, I'm it's, I can't think of a time where a candidate has ever come to my door, even at the local level, you know, to, to let me know who they are, what they represent or what, you know, what I want. <laughs> so that was, you know, a, a stroke of you know genius to put herself out there. Um, Kenny, why don't you touch on that for a moment? Because the, the human element of that is just phenomenal. Like, I, I'd love that. I'd love to know where that idea stemmed from and um, how that came about. Yeah. Yeah. That, that face to face is everything. Um, it's, it's so simple yet so powerful and it's certainly not something that we invented, you know, it, it's, it's a, a long tried and true, um, grassroots organizing strategy, but, um, unfortunately, um, unfortunately we really haven't been doing that work much, especially in rural communities. You know, we would go, to so many doors that haven't been contacted by a campaign ever in their whole voting history. We can see all of the contacts on, on the app that we would use or, or a lot of folks that haven't been contacted since 2008, Obama's campaign, um, where he, he really invested in, in that grassroots strategy. And for us, I think a lot of it stemmed out of coming from a movement, movement organizing background um and realizing in that work how crucial relationships and community are and just translating that kind of instinctually to a campaign setting and also you know we'd done uh, in the campaigns i'd worked on before we had done a good bit of this like phone calling and and canvassing we pretty much ditched the phones except for 
when COVID hit in our campaigns and really leaned into the face-to-face because -face, felt like that was where we were really able to connect with folks and made a big shift from the campaigns I'd worked on before where it was so numbers driven, driven, which I think is one of the real Achilles heels of, you know, the Democratic Party or probably both parties when they when they try and go out and, and have the conversations is, you know, it's very top down. It's all about how many doors did you knock? How many conversations did you have? You know, just like extracting as much data as you can and numbers, numbers, numbers. And and I could see in the campaigns that I worked on that that was really doing a disservice to the campaigns and the candidates and really everyone involved because it was just so transactional. And so we really had a focus on spending time with folks, emphasizing listening, throwing out the old, like showing up with a clipboard and a script and trying to read off as much of your position as possible and really just going in with a focus on on listening to folks and trying to have a positive interaction. Right on. And if, if I could just chime in again, uh, getting to watch that as, um, you know, uh, you know, making the film, it's an, it was an amazing effort um, by Chloe in particular, if you want to talk about endurance efforts, you know, the, the just month after month after month um, going, you know, 12 hours a day um, and, not just there's an incredible emotional labor that comes with showing up and and being vulnerable, listening to people, and um, I was just I I don't think we quite pulled that thread in the film, but or maybe we did, but there's you know her feat of endurance in in that door knocking kind of makes running 100 miles look pretty easy, you know, <laughs> um, and and it was really impressive to see that and see that. Um, that sort of expression of, of, of toughness and, um, care, you know, and commitment. Oh yeah. No, I, I think it was evidenced by how many, uh, cans that she had on the, uh, the floor <laughs> of her Subaru. Uh, I think Canyon yeah. made note of that in the, uh, in the film. So, um, you can tell cans. how much Stop your cans. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. LaCroix and, and various, uh, seltzers and such, but yeah, it was, it was incredible. You can tell she spent a lot of time, um, in her car and on the road. So, um, and, I mean, and you mentioned the, the, I can't remember the exact number, but thousands of doors that were knocked on, um, to, you know, to talk face to face, which is just, uh, infallible. I can't imagine, <laughs> you know, that much like trying to interact with that many people. I'm exhausted if I have four phone calls in a day. I can't imagine interacting with that many people on a, a regular basis. It was, that was incredible. Um, you also tie in, um, uh, you know, as you said, Canyon's running into this film. Can you touch on on that piece? How how would uh, I like? I love the play on Royal Runner, right? So talk about that for a minute for us. How How'd you tie that in so succinctly? Yeah, so the film, uh, for folks who haven't watched it yet, the film sort of spans four years of um, of Chloe's uh, political races and um, her and Canyon campaigning and running those together and then weaving sort of back and forth with these running efforts that Canyon was putting in um, the, the Smokies Traverse across the, the Great Smokies National Park and um and some of the hometown races of the naturalists and um i it was really kind of baked into the idea from the start um to try to bl blend the metaphors of, of trail running 
um, showing up to run and that commitment and um, and political campaigning because in some ways um, from from the perspective that I was making coming at making the film it felt like really hard to imagine how you would even begin to um, to engage in in the political sphere in, in electoral politics in a in a meaningful way beyond voting um, and seeing Canyon and Chloe you know just dive into that and show up and, and start doing the work. Um, I, it's, it struck me as analogous to, to that feeling of, oh, wow, I haven't, I haven't run in a while. How will I ever, how will I ever run five miles or 10 miles or a hundred miles, you know, like, and so that just that idea of starting at this place of, you know, where we all start, where, you know, um, of of uh, of of taking a first step of believing that you can make incremental progress and change, and I I thought that um, you know that kind of made a lot of sense to me coming from a a, a running background, um, and and was something that I wanted to share with an outdoor community that I think is is really so full of folks that are incredibly talented, incredibly motivated, and don't we don't always um, see see ways to leverage or bridge that into political action. Certainly there's there's a lot of folks doing it and more and more, which is amazing. But I, I wanted to just try and make it as simple as, as take the first step and, and sort of show those two different trails, the campaign trail and, and Canyon's, Canyon's running. Um, and he was, uh, yeah, it was just fun to see him on his running journey too and to see him tackling bigger and bigger objectives and and we kind of sold him short because we didn't actually film some of the, the coolest stuff he's done in the last couple of years um but uh yeah he was he was a good sport with getting chased around on the trails well you can state it right now forrest uh like what what did uh it, it, he did do the the scar attempt during this film but and and ken you can speak to it too but um, obviously you did it. So, <laughs> um, why don't you talk about the, the, the recent, because the film is your first go at scar and you can talk about that and then tell us what, what happened or transpired just recently. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, scar for, for those who, who don't know, it's, uh, it's about like 72 miles and stands through the smoky mountains national park on the Appalachian trail, um, with about 18, thousand feet of vert um and just one access point in the middle newfound gap um and gosh it's some of the most beautiful more remote country on all of the east coast that you know we have right in our backyard um and it's been you know it's been on on my radar for a long time growing up here um you know i think will will harlan who who's a local running legend um was was one of the early ones to champion the route um held fkt on it a couple of times and ran it to raise awareness i think for um for mountain top removal and, and coal mining in the southeast um, um and then john kelly had it um and I went for it in 2020 and um, came up came up well shy on it and but had a good experience and that's that's what's captured in the film and then got the chance to go back and do it again this past summer and was able to cut off 
three hours from my time from <laughs> two years ago, which was so cool. And um, I broke a broke a finger pretty bad in the process of uh, 25, but um, made it made it to the finish. It was such just such an awesome day in the mountains. Um, yeah. I'm glad you got to rectify that because you know when I was watching it in the film, I was like, ah, he's got the FKT. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's that's that's awesome. It, that was uh, that was wonderful. Um, but you know, going back to this piece, Canyon, about the 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 running that um you know that has kind of interplays into the, the film. Um what did that you know piece you know I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the balance of the two. And that, that comes about in the film a little bit, but can you, you know, kind of expound on that piece a little bit more? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I would imagine pretty much everyone listening to this podcast is, is a phenomenal runner in their own right. And I think something special about this community is just, we, you know, it's almost become second nature just to bite off, big goals and, and persevere at, at really difficult things. And it's so, it's so rewarding to do that. And I think that, um, some of that ability to persevere and, and just commit to something day in and day out that, that I really learned a lot of through ultra running, um, carried over powerfully to the campaign work and being able to show up seven days a week and, um, put in, put in my best to all the way to, to election day. Um, make sure, make sure all the hay was stacked in the barn that, that could possibly be collected and, um, and running for me in that process, as well as other outdoor pursuits, um, really, I think enabled me to stay in it for, for the long haul and like, keep my, keep my cup full, so to speak. Um, just like so a lot of my work was computer work on the campaigns diving deep into data or what have you and so to get outside and be in my body um moving through through the woods was was really important for finding that time to ground and and recent create balance right yeah absolutely awesome um so uh forest watching your your brother go through all of this um you know give us some of your overall thoughts of what you learned uh, by watching and observing not only your brother but but chloe yeah man um well we might need more than more than an hour <laughs> in in short i think um kind of what i was talking about uh, just a minute ago in terms of the commitment to 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 take on something that you don't feel like you have the skills to do right now and to build towards that to um to surround yourself with community i think that applies in in the trail running world and and folks listening to this know that you know from from the number of folks it takes to put on a race um to the, all of the support you get along the way um but the same seeing the same thing happen um uh, along the way on a political campaign and how many people it takes um, showing up and and how much of a need for that is and how 
you know, similarly gratifying it can be to show up in that role, um, supporting, supporting someone else, like supporting a racer can be really fun, you know, supporting a candidate and going out and phone banking or knocking doors or, um, doing that sort of thing can be a really connective, um, fulfilling part of, uh, of, of being in community. Um, and I think that sort of surprised me and was a really neat takeaway to see, um, just how much community is built around a campaign or the type of campaign that, that Chloe ran. Um, and that was really heartening to me because I think so much of what we see is just the single, the single image, the sort of, um, you know, celebrity figure of, of politics and to see how healthy and sustaining and, and, um, sort of, um, yeah, meaningful for a whole community. It can be to, um, to have campaigns operating in that way was, was really, uh, a neat thing for me to get to see. That's awesome. Kenyon, let me change the question a little bit for you. What would you teach us about, um, the experience that you had, how can we apply some of what you've done into our lives, um, you know, with politics as, you know, as, as both Forrest and I have admittedly said, we are not as heavily into politics. We may not know our candidates as well. What can you teach us or what kind of information can you give us to help us be better at, you know, selecting the right candidates and, and getting our voices heard? Mm. Uh, I love that question. I feel like I, I don't have, uh, <laughs> I definitely don't have all of the answers on it. I feel like that's something that, that I'm asking myself still every day. It's like how, how, um, especially in the face of challenges like climate change that just feel so, so huge. It's just like, how, how do I make a difference here? And I think, um, yeah, I think just like we all come from wildly different starting points, but I think a really important distinction for me is um, the individual versus the systemic. And like, yes, it's important to make individual choices around, you know, reducing your carbon footprint as much as you can, but the really, we really have to punch above our weight in any way we can possibly find to, to pull levers that have outsized effects on a systems level. Um, and so whether that's, you know, running for office, if, if that's something that, um, that you could do to, to influence legislation or working on a campaign or just getting involved, vol volunteering, like especially local and state level campaigns, if you, um, if you have an extra five month, five hours in your month um, that you could give and, especially just like, look at your skill set. Are you, are you a graphic designer? Is that something you could offer? Are you, you know, are you in the data world or um, are you up for just having authentic conversations with folks? Like we were talking about going door to door, like those, those add up to make a really huge impact um, in the athletic world. You know, are you, um, can you influence brands that you're a part of? You know, we see brands like Patagonia making, making just huge, huge leaps in this world of, of systemic action. And can we push, push other brands that maybe we're associated with in some way to, to follow their lead? Um, so I think, yeah, thinking, thinking about what levers we have access to in our individual lives and then trying to pull on those as much as we can. 
what do you think is the best way to learn about the candidates? Is it, you know, going to their, their, you know, their political website? Um, is it, you know, trying to reach out to their office um, and kind of getting, you know, their political stances perhaps on something that's a, an issue to you? What, what would you suggest there? Yeah, I think their, their websites are, are a good place to start. Um, ballotpedia.com is, is an easy place to kind of find a fairly non-biased index of, of everyone who's, who's running. Um, you know, if there's organizations that you feel like especially align with your values, like the Sierra Club or Protect Our Winters or um, something like that, oftentimes they'll put out kind of voter guides that, that can be really helpful. Um, and totally reaching out to the candidate, see, seeing what kind of response you get from them personally, I think can be one of the most telling things. Cool. Cool. Um, I'd like to kind of close here with just your favorite piece of this film. What was the most meaningful piece of this film to each of you? Forrest, you want to start us off? Oh, man. Um, I think I still get shivers uh, when it when it kind of cuts to that ending scene and the radio announcer. We found this radio clip from Maine Public Radio where he's like, and and what's the biggest surprise? The biggest surprise is you know coming out of District 13, where the young Senator Chloe Maxman upset you know the um, highest ranking re Republican, and um, that for various reasons that uh, just gives me shivers every time because it we we worked on this film so long to get to a point where we could we could have that you know where we could have that moment and um and i just remember the the morning after the election i was up there you know filming that and just that it captures that feeling of excitement that we all had that um something really really surprising and really that seemed impossible had happened, you know, something that seemed maybe impossible just a few days or months before. Um, and it, it still flashes me back to that excitement and, um, and Kenny might take my other favorite line, so I'll leave it for him, but I'll, I'll check it. <laughs> no, what is it? Seed me, seed me. Oh, it's, uh, well, it's, uh, it's Chloe's, Chloe's mom, um, yeah. who could have a whole film just on her, but she, Shoshana, um, <laughs> you know, she, she talks about Canyon and Chloe doing something that anyone who cares about their community and is willing to show up can do, you know, and that is to inspire other people to create change and to um, have really meaningful impact in, in their political system, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are, those are, those are my, my favorites as well. I think, I would also just add in, I think you did a really good job of capturing some some of the just fun and joy that was a part of the campaigns. That was a big focus from the get-go is like trying to change the culture of organizing work and campaign work a little bit. Um, and, you know, it was so hard and so exhausting at times, but we also had a lot of fun with it. And I think we'll look back on, on those two campaigns as some of the best years um, for the rest of our lives. And I feel like you, yeah, you came in and captured that human element really well. And that was special. I would say I was, I was touched by how 
passionate she was when she spoke. Um, you know, she put herself in front of um, audiences, small and large. And that was that was my favorite piece was seeing her as as a person, you know, um, and just being vulnerable, right? Expressing who she is and what she wanted. And that was that was the most amazing thing to me, you know, um, how she was honest about what the political system has been and what she wants it to be. Um, it, you know, as I said, when we started her passion, it just, it resonated. Like it was just on display for all to see. And that was amazing. And just, you know, the way, like I said earlier, the way you captured it, that's what touched me the most. Um, you know, Chloe, as I said, she's just amazing and you're lucky to have her in your life. <laughs> she's cool. Amen. Absolutely. Um, any final thoughts, takeaways, or imparting words that either of you want to talk about with the film itself, or um, and I'd like to just you know briefly touch on your book, Canyon. But let's wrap up with the the film here. Anything you guys want to say? I'd, I'd point folks to um, you can you can see it. It's all, it just came out online publicly, um, and you can go to dirtroadorganizing.org um and it's it's available there and that's that's also the website for chloe and my nonprofit where we're hoping to support folks doing similar organizing work all across the country um or you can just google rural rural runners um it's on vimeo yeah and also i, I would just chime into that that um we are uh, able to partner with an organization called kinema that um, does these really great um, virtual and in-person screenings. So if anyone listening is, you know, wants to uh, host a virtual screening, um, you can go to kinema.com and search Rural Runners. And um, there's an option there to invite Kenny and Chloe for a Q&A. Um, and we're, we're trying to offer the film back um, to communities as an organizing tool as a way to bring people together and uh, just have something fun to sort of you know ice break uh, or or provide a little extra fuel on the fire going into this midterm season and beyond so that's awesome i i've suggested it to my son to present it to his civics teacher and say hey you know can we watch this in class so um mm, awesome. I, I think yeah i think it could be a great tool for um you know teachers throughout the u.s um nice yeah to, let, you know, let them know we'd we'd be thrilled to to skype into the classroom if, sweet if sweet i will i'll do that that's wonderful um and so amazing you know amazing job you two what a what a beautiful film um canyon you also have a book out there book uh it's dirt road revival kind of like you were <laughs> almost saying with your your website there um can you uh talk about does the book tie into the movie at all or um separate entity you know what's what's the premise behind that yeah uh, they they very much go off of each other i think the main difference is nobody reads books these days who has the attention span <laughs> for that <laughs> a film heck yeah um <laughs> <laughs> sort of joking um <laughs> yeah it was I mean it was a labor of love it was just you know Chloe and I sat down after these campaigns and took a really hard look at at the recent history of progressive organizing and and the Democratic Party in rural America and kind of what what we see has gone wrong there a bit and then we tell the story of of our two campaigns from the inside going 
going really deep into what that process is like. And then um, the last few chapters are just lessons learned that we feel like are applicable to, to folks to take into their communities anywhere. Um, so it's dirt road revival, how to rebuild rural politics and why our future depends on it. Sweet. I'm going to, I'm going to put all that stuff in the, the show notes. Um, so folks can, you know, find the video, they can you know find your book. Um, just wonderful stuff, man. Uh, at, at your age, uh, the two of you, gosh, you've done so much already. It's it's incredible. I can't wait to see what else comes out of you guys. You're oh, you're amazing. Um, and I, I sincerely appreciate your time here, um, spending with me. Um, if folks want to reach out, have questions, um, Kenyon, you mentioned your uh, your website there. Um, imagine they can reach out through there. Um, is there anywhere else you would like them to connect with you? Email's great too, canyonwoodward at gmail.com. All right. Instagram, Twitter. I don't really know how it works, but. <laughs> <laughs> I can, yeah, I'll put your Instagram account on there as well. Uh, Forrest? I, I've been on a bit of a digital uh, social media sabbatical, but uh, you. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking about getting back on AOL Instant Messenger. So uh, <laughs> I've got to figure out my login there. <laughs> You want me to give some of your pager number? Or... Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> do you have a website? Yeah, I do have a website. It's just forestwoodward.com. And I, I'm pretty sure my email is still on there. And um, based on the number of spam calls I get, probably my phone number too. So. <laughs> All right, I got it. All but no, we, we really, um, yeah, appreciate the time and the conversation, Aaron. And um and sincerely, if there's anything that we can do to support anyone listening who has more questions or would like to organize a screening, um, we are, yeah, we're on the internet, so we, we, we can be found. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you have a classroom or a running group that, that um, you know, Chloe and I would be thrilled to come and, come and talk. And if you have any, any inklings at all of running for office or, or working on a campaign or organizing for an issue that you're passionate about in, in your community, the, you know, the next chapter that Chloe and I are opening up with Dirt Road Organizing is to mentor and support folks in, in doing that. So please don't hesitate to reach out. That's wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you, Thank Aaron. you so much, Aaron. The Woodward Brothers, I, I can't tell you how much I love those two. Uh, just genuinely awesome, amazing human beings doing great things. So um, feel privileged and honored to have that conversation. Uh, really enjoyed their film again, Rural Runners. Um, I will put that link again for the you know for all of what we talked about in the show notes. So uh, check those guys out. Uh, you know, follow along in their journeys. They do some some outstanding things. So um, please, you know, connect with them. Yeah, again, they they they're just they're just some of the the greatest you know people. That family is just um just outstanding. So uh, now we're gonna get into uh, my conversation with Will Weidman. Um, this one is uh, is pretty long because uh, we talk about Tour de Jantz, Uh and Tour de Jantz being a two hundred plus mile race. There's a lot to talk about. So uh, please enjoy this conversation with Will Weidman. Yeah, Aaron, good to be uh, good to be with you here. So yeah, I'm Will, I'm based uh, in Virginia here in Arlington. Um, so been running trails and ultras for a long time. Love the mountains. Uh, get out to Shenandoah National Park whenever I can. 
Um, big fan of the Hellbender race. I've run that one three times, I think all three <laughs> editions. So that's where we got the chance to meet. And um, yeah, here in Arlington, have two boys, six and nine. So live here with my wife and we all manage to survive Halloween. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, and what do you do for a living, Will? Um, so I work at a um, software company. Um, and then also recently I've kind of scaled that back and do a lot of the coaching and race directing stuff. So do that about 60% of the time now. Awesome, man. Awesome. Um, and you just put on a race, right? It was a 25 K. Was that right? I did. Yeah. We had a 25 K and a 10 K. So what the goal really there was try to just get more people out to the trails and the mountains. So have a, you know, shorter distance, sub-ultra distance race out in the Massanuttons. And so we hosted that out there with a uh, good friend, Alex Papadopoulos and Athletic Equation. Um, and it was great. We had a lot of people first time out on those trails, first time running a trail race. That was that was the goal. So we did that. Going to try to shoot for one in the spring as well. Okay. Um, was that your first time directing a race? It was. It was uh it was challenging, <laughs> even for a shorter race, as you well know. So I can, I've always appreciated race directors. I can appreciate it all the more now. <laughs> What's the goal for the spring? Um, the longer race, or what? What are you thinking? So I think the way the route will play out with where we're going to have it, it will be a little longer. Um, still sub ultra, so it's going to be a cool. probably ten to twelve mile and a twenty mile route that we'll have. Sweet. I appreciate that fact that you're you're doing some some ultra races. It seems like everybody wants to put on an, an ultra, <laughs> so that's great. And that's you know the greatest way to get people into our sport is to uh, to create distances that are that are doable um, and not intimidating because not everybody wants to just do a fifty k or or higher. <laughs> so uh, appreciate you creating the opportunity. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah so um, will take us back. Uh, takes back through your running. I I, I want to get into uh, Tour Johnson and everything, but let's hear a little bit more about you. So, when did running start for you? Oh, so running started um, close to twenty years ago, and so was not a runner before. Didn't run in high school or college. I started running really just to keep up with my then girlfriend, now wife. She just took me out <laughs> on some runs, and I just hung on for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, running with her and then you know just started to get into it more I had a good friend who ran the New York City Marathon and you know put that into into my mind and did that in 2004 spent a couple of years you know road running running marathons and then found the JFK 50 loved um, loved the trail part of it and gravitated more towards the trails and ultras from there and kept going <laughs> that's fantastic and so jfk was uh your first foray into the ultra world it was yeah so i jumped from road marathon to 50 mile race um <laughs> i think i was one of the people i think a lot of people it's interesting read either the dean Carnazzi's book ultra marathon man or born to run and that got a lot of people into the sport actually i was the ultra marathon man i read that and <laughs> for whatever reason that planted the seed to get me to go try that one what do you think it was about that that resonated with you uh yeah i don't know it's just um his enthusiasm and passion definitely came through you know he, pretty clear he loved what he was doing mm -hmm. 
part of it too is you know just being amazed at how far somebody <laughs> could go and how much they could push themselves and it makes you think well i wonder what's actually possible and yeah. see what you can actually end up doing out there it's probably the combination of those two things is what got me there I think then, you know, JFK is interesting, right? Because you have the 16 miles on the Appalachian Trail, then you have like a flat towpath and some road. And what kept me coming back was those times on the trail. So running on the AT, and then when I was training and, you know, doing more trail running, that's when I realized this is what I love to do. This is a ton of fun. I love being out in these environments. And that's definitely where I, from there out, gravitated towards. That's cool. That's cool. Um was that like your first introduction into the idea of ultra or um, had you had been around any races, you know, previously that you, you saw this or recognized it? Um, I think that was the first. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, but you know, it was a lot smaller back then. Yeah. You're probably than it yeah. Is today there wasn't as much. I don't remember. I don't remember hearing about it much before. So I kind of just stumbled upon it. Yeah. Through the book and it's all brand new that's cool that's cool i remember when i was back back when i was in high school reading i think it was running times magazine at the time um and they had they were talking about um leadville and i mean the idea of um you know a hundred mile race it, i don't even think it registered <laughs> you know <laughs> like that you know people would would actually race a hundred miles um but yeah i mean Ultra Marathon Man was a fantastic book. Um, I think it kind of um, it made uh, ultra running a little bit less. Um, I don't want to say intimidating, but um, a little bit more commonplace. Um, you know, the, I think more people felt they could they could do it. Um, you know, whereas like the Born to Run. That had so many different ideas in it. When I every time I've listened to it, I don't know how many times, but every time I listen to it, I pull like a different you know message away from it. At at, at first, it was the uh, minimalist, um, and then I think as minimalism kind of um, wasn't at the forefront as much, I I really got into the the story. Um, but like you said, you know, ultra marathon man, it, it really did kind of just portray ultra running in a way that. I don't think I'd ever really interpreted it myself. Um, so that's, that's a great point. Um, and Dean is, I mean, he's just such a inspiration to so many people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's cool. Um, right on. So JFK historical race too. That's really cool. So, um, <laughs> I mean, you had done marathon, so you had been around kind of those big race environments. Um, but, um, participating in something like that, that's, um, that's, that's pretty cool, especially for your first one to to do one of uh, our nation's oldest, um, you know, ultra marathon races. Uh, that's that's pretty cool. So where where did it go from there? What was your first hundred miler? It was pretty soon after. So JFK was November, and then I went right to the Vermont Hundred mm. next July. I think maybe with a fifty k in between. Okay, so I, I jumped up pretty fast. Um, <laughs> both JFK and Vermont actually went quite well like say it was probably mostly some beginner's luck and just happened to have good days out there because i really didn't know what i was doing you know i didn't know you know nutrition or anything about that i had for jfk this you know poland spring water bottle and this fanny pack with some pretzels and who knows what right so those both actually went pretty well um 
And I actually had a couple of years that were pretty hard, like a lot of DNFs, and I couldn't get the 100 mile distance done for the next, I think, four tries I had DNFs at the 100 oh. mile distance. Okay. What do you think? Um, could you attribute those to anything? I'm, I'm sure that each had a specific reason, but was there anything that you can think of? The biggest thing was definitely the nutrition. You know, I just couldn't seem to lock that in. You know, I kind of end up, um, you know, throwing up pretty early during the race, you know, mile 20, mile 30, and then mm -hmm. just couldn't bounce back from that. So I couldn't really figure out or crack nutrition and, you know, look back at what it was doing. And I, you know, I now see why, but <laughs> and what, what was that? Just out of curiosity, what, what was the, uh, electrolytes was probably the biggest one. I just yeah. didn't have that dialed. Mm. So I think I was probably too low electrolytes hydrating, but then it was just sitting in my stomach and then I couldn't get food in and eventually it would all, mm. all come up. So yeah, I couldn't get the nutrition going. I think some of it was, you know, the mindset aspect, the, the mental side of things, which, you know, obviously always so important, but I would get too fixated, you know, because the first two went well, I wanted to get a particular result or a certain time or a certain placement. When things got hard or the wheels came off as they pretty much always do in a hundred mile race, I just <laughs> struggled to kind of reset and reframe um, mm. and just really just appreciate that I was out there and enjoy being in these places and just keep moving. So I had to, you know, eventually was able to kind of reframe some of the mindset dial in a bit more of the nutrition and, you know, more reliable results since then. But yeah, I had a couple of years where it was actually pretty tough. And one point was actually fairly close to saying, I'm just going to, you know, go back to road racing or go back to shorter distances and give up the long stuff. But mm -hmm. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, the mind piece is always such a fascination for me. Um, can you expound on how you changed your mindset? Where did it, you know, you were saying how you were so kind of goal oriented focused based on, you know, time or finish place. How did that evolve and change? What did you change to, um, to kind of reset or reframe your, your mindset? Uh, I think the biggest factor was actually having our first son, um, and, you know, before I could basically train as much as I needed to, I could fit it into the schedule. I could go out on long weekend days. I could fit in races. But, you know, um, when you have a little one at home, you know, time is precious. You don't have as much time to be out there. Yes. And I came to really just appreciate and just enjoy, like, this is just the time that I have to be out there. And whatever that time was, whether it was an hour or whether I was, you know, out at a race, just enjoy that and appreciate it and realize this is what I love to do. I mean, I love just being out in the mountains, on the trails, in the woods. And if it's a good day and it's going well, that's great. And if it's not going well and I have to hike for a few hours, that's fine too. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and just really focus more on just enjoying it, appreciating it, recognizing, you know, my family sacrifice for me to be here and to do this and just have fun and just, be, you know, do what I intended to do and be there. And funny enough, I think, you know, taking that less competitive type mindset and more just enjoying it ended up, you know, doing better and, you know, actually helped in the long run, you know, with that mindset, I think I ended up doing better that way than when I was actually trying to run probably too fast and too aggressively. But yeah, it's mostly that just um, enjoying and appreciating being out there. Good, good. As it should be. <laughs> yeah, As it should be. Um, so with that, that change in mindset, um, what was your... Uh, what was your next goal that you, you ended up finishing? 
So I finished Vermont in 2008. Um, at several years where it was challenging, you know, had a, a new baby at home and then ended up finishing Grindstone in 2014. Okay. Um, which was great. That race went well, you know, had a blast there. And that was kind of good to get back to finishing that 100 mile distance after six years. And really throughout, you know, since I started doing this, I did always have both UTMB and then since 2010, Tour de Géant in the back of my mind. Wow. Um, I'd heard about those races. I got into it. I'd seen just the pictures of these amazing, you know, crazy looking courses. You know, I know you've been out in the UTMB course. And mm -hmm. so I had that in the back of my mind for a while. And then it's probably when I, you know, finished Grindstone that year in 2014, um, we'd taken a family trip out to the Alps. So I got to do a little bit of running over there. That's when I started to think, okay, now let me start working towards some of those goals. Let me start on that path to, you know, first UTMB and then hopefully tour someday and started really working more seriously towards that. I ran on, um, the, um, <laughs> the current standards qualifying aside, <laughs> um, <laughs> So what did that look like for you back then? What what were your qualifying races for UTMB? What were you doing? So UTMB at the time, the lottery wasn't the hardest part. The tricky part was actually finding races that got right. you whatever their qualifying points were. Because right. most races in the U.S. weren't doing that at the time. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, um, I don't know which races did I do. So I think I did one race on that family trip to Europe. Okay. And then the other two were races that I was able to do while on uh, work trips, actually, over there. So I ended up having some 50-mile race um, in France that I did. And then there was an 80-mile, very small race in the um, mountains in Germany. Uh, and then it was, yeah, Trail Verbier was the one that I did in the summer. So so those are my qualifying races. Nice. Um, and did those over a couple of years. And ended up doing UTMB in which year? I did the first time in 2017. So I've, I've gone there three times now. 2017 was the first. Oh, right on. Very yeah. cool. Um, it, I mean, like you said, it's, it's, it's an amazing experience. Um, what did you take away from UTMB? Cause you've, you know, you've had some, some great mountain races held under a side. Um, so uh, how did, how did that go? And, and what did you take away from UTMB? So UTMB is, you know, when I first, um, you really started training more frequently in the mountains. So, you know, really made the effort to get out to the Shenandoahs, um, kind of got a good group of friends who I'd meet up with out there. So, you know, people like Alex Papadopoulos, who was great to just show me a lot of those trails and kind of formed a really good network of people to train with out there. So in 2017, I did a lot more of that. Um, and found that, you know, it was a ton of fun to do it. <laughs> and yeah. it also, um, you know, definitely was good training for, for me, like that training worked well in terms of, you know, being able to build fitness, you know, not worrying as much about really fast kind of road or tracks type workouts and do more workouts in that environment. Um, and so that was great. So I think, you know, that definitely, I think set me on a good path of just, you know, improving fitness. And I also just realized, you know, the the big mountains, big long climbs and descents are just what I enjoy doing the most. And so that's definitely where I've gravitated more. It's what I just really enjoy. So races like UTMB, races like Hellbender, like that's definitely what's uh, become more of my wheelhouse. <laughs> and, um, was just a ton of fun. And you know, UTMB went 
well, it went better than I expected. So I think that also really lit a bit of a fire, you know, kind of went at the better end of what I could have thought. You know, my quads were still blown out on the last couple of descents. <laughs> I wasn't ready to descend 33,000 feet, but it went well, it lit a fire and definitely, you know, made me want to kind of take it even a bit more seriously and really try to focus on running in the mountains and doing those kind of races as well. That's awesome. Um, anything that you did to kind of supplement, you know, obviously you had your, your trips to the Shenandoahs, but, um, anything else that you did, um, strength wise, or did you do any treadmill incline hiking? What is there any other things that you supplemented to, to kind of help you train for these things? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, 2017, um, a lot of time in the Shenandoahs focus on vert. I did not do a lot of intensity. Uh, I did do a lot of treadmill hiking. So I did supplement with that. So it was very much focused on just getting used to putting on more vert. So I hadn't been doing that kind of training. So, I, you know, I had to really build that. And I really built that pretty deliberately, you know, throughout that year, just steadily from January onwards, just increasing that. Um, I think that worked well. And then, you know, part of what I realized was the next, you know, to go beyond that was probably more bringing in more strength training and more intensity. So started to do that. So definitely got more serious and I've continued to just do more and more of the, the strength training side of things. And then also in addition to just getting, you know, the vert and the climbing, you know, having some deliberate runs out there. So doing things like two by 15 minute uphill tempo, harder type efforts over the course of a four or five hour long run. So more of that kind of structure in it. And so that I think, you know, definitely led to a good step change between 2017 and when I went back to UTMB in 2019. Um, course was about an hour longer in 2019 because of some weather modifications they had to make in 2017. So on an hour long course, I ended up going about two hours faster and I wasn't really doing more volume. So it wasn't, you know, significant increase in mileage or vert. It was really more, I think the other strength training you know, come some intensity in the right places. Right on. Uh, if you don't mind, could you expound on the the strength training aspect? Like what, what type of stuff were you incorporating? How often that kind of thing? So I started more with um, a lot of core. It's a lot of core type work, a lot of mobility, band work, doing that two to three times a week. Um, body weight type exercises, even just body weight squats, body weight lunges. One thing I was surprised by, um, because I actually started working with a PT early 2019. I'd had some lingering issues that weren't going away. So kind of got a lot of those PT body weight mobility type exercises. I was surprised one, like I would just get really sore after doing like body weight squats, <laughs> <laughs> which was amazing. Um, but I kept building from there and then actually, you know, continue to progress to kind of add in more weighted workouts. So now, you know, at this point I'll do, you know, deadlifts, squats with for me you know reasonable amounts of weight usually two to three strength workouts a week so one that's heavier with weights more lower body focused and then complementing that with some of the core total body mobility type work and i do think that's helped a lot um one just for injury prevention i think it's helped keep me you know knock on wood pretty healthy over the years <laughs> but also you know when trying to move faster on some you know, mountainous terrain, I think having more of that strength and power has come a long way too. Fantastic. Um, and you know, we, we always talk about, um, training for gain, (laughs) 
but um, was there anything that you did after your first experience in 2017, realizing that the downhills, you know, are, they're just, they're so taxing <laughs> and, and tough on the body. Anything you did differently to prepare yourself for 2019 and the descents? Aside from the strength training, I did do some of those kind of work, as I mentioned, with the downhill focus as well. So really pushing and there might be a downhill type tempo effort. It can be tricky to find the right terrain where, you know, you're not going to fall and hurt yourself doing that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, actually ran more, more deliberately on some downhill focused workouts. I think that definitely helped. You know, I think the strength training was part of that and helped as well. Finding the right steepness of trails because that is one interesting thing you know, a race like utmb and and hellbender has it too just the sustained long descents at a certain grade you know are hard to train for so part of it too is finding the right trails that would mimic that well where i could actually find a say 20 plus percent grade trail that would go downhill for multiple thousands of feet and then actually training specifically on that <laughs> um, so yeah, that was definitely part of it is, you know, finding the right areas and the right pockets where I was training to get that specific aspect, right. especially in a couple of months leading up to the race. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Um, you had mentioned that you were, um, looking at Tour de Jean's, you know, pretty, pretty early on. Um, did that come about from your, your travels to Europe? Um, how did, how did you find out about Tour de Jean's? So I remember reading when I used to get the uh, paper edition of Trail Runner magazine back in 2010, they had a feature on that. That was the first year the race happened. I remember reading that and just looking at the pictures of this course and reading about this just seemingly absurd <laughs> monster of a race. Uh, but does that look so incredible? And that, you know, just got into my mind at that point. And, um, I ended up uh, having a friend who I worked with who has now run it three times. So we were talking a number of years ago when he did his first finish and he's gone back since then. And he just always talked about just the amazing experience. And aside from the race itself and the course, just the culture and everything that surrounds the race. So it just continued to be there. Um, something I was just thinking about one of the long-term bucket list type races. Right on. Can you, um, Fill in those that aren't as familiar with Tour de Jantz. Can you fill them in about the length, vert, you know, location, all that good stuff? <laughs> yeah, so it starts in Cormayor in Italy. So that's on the Italian side, right at the foot of Mont Blanc. The UTMB route actually goes through there. So it's at about mile 50. Uh, so it starts at that end of the UTMB course, but then goes the other direction. So it goes east of Mont Blanc. Uh, into what's called the Aosta Valley. So it's this small region in Italy covered in large mountains, has several national parks. So it um, has the Grand Paradiso National Park and then bumps up also against Switzerland as well. So against the Matterhorn and Monte Rosa. So it starts in Cormayor. It is just one big loop that you do counterclockwise from there. It's actually a um, a popular hiking route. So it's really just two trails. You're on Alta Via 1, and then you're on Alta Via 2 the whole time. <laughs> and those make up this big loop that uh, is also popular for hiking. They have these, you know, mountain huts, these refugios along the way, just every couple hours. They're in these beautiful locations. Um, and so they're all along this route. The loop itself is um, 
I think I can now accurately say what it is. There's always a lot of debate of how long is Tor actually and how much time <laughs> does it have, but I did get a GPX file for the whole thing. Uh, it's about 220 miles with roughly 85,000 feet of climbing. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's the route. You know, it goes through a lot of these small towns in the area. They have six kind of major aid points that they call life bases along the route. And then beyond that, just have these mountain refugios that are open and supporting runners. Oh. And this was your first go at a distance of this length. It was, which uh, I now might do a little bit differently, but yes, this was, <laughs> this is my first go uh, anything, you know, much longer than a hundred. So the longest I'd done before was, you know, roughly 30 hours. Right on. Um, we'll talk about what you might do differently, but <laughs> let's, let's get into what you did do. <laughs> um, so, uh, training for tour, when would you say your training started? How far out from tour did it start? I guess there's two ways I think of it. I mean, one is in part, I would think of the training I did before the 2017 UTMB as one way you can think about where training started in that really for those five years, I was primarily training for big mountain races mm -hmm. and, you know, changed my training approach was doing more vert focus and the strength training and all of that. So I definitely built and kind of layered on top over the years. So all throughout that time, that was the main focus for training. The tour buildup specifically, um, I would say was, you know, from January 1st, you know, was when I was kind of mentally framing it. Uh, and then the race was on September 11th. So that was all very much focused on tour. Right on. Did you have any um, down periods in, in that time, that time frame? I did. So I started actually um, relatively lower volume mm -hmm. and actually did have more intensity further out. So you know, following the least specific to most specific, I was doing, you know, VO2 max, you know, a lot of faster intervals, trying to get a little bit more speed. I was doing a lot of strength work, um, some heavier weighted strength work early in the year, because I knew when I was doing the big tour training blocks, I probably would just be too tired to be doing heavy strength training. So I was doing a lot of that early in the year. Um, and then transitioned, uh, you know, into more of the what I'll call the typical kind of mountain type training leading up to Hellbender of last year. Um, and th so that was the big focus for the first half of the year was Hellbender. And then I took um, some time after that, you know, just to let the body recover, recharge. So that was probably the major downtime that I had. Um, but otherwise I was able to stay pretty healthy and really train pretty consistently throughout and Will did fantastic at, at Hellbender. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about Hellbender for a second? I'd love to. I love Hellbender. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, obviously the weather this past year was was definitely a factor. Uh, we started in the rain. <laughs> um, so um, going into this, um, what was your goal for Hellbender? So my main goal with tour in mind was, you know, I was going to go out, I was going to give it what I had, I was going to mm -hmm. push as hard as I could, and then take that downtime after. But I really wanted to also be able to manage the race well, and wanted to be able to finish, obviously tired, but feeling good. So to me, that meant nutrition going well, um, managing my gear, you know, just trying to have a good solid race without many low points. 
um, really just as a confidence booster that if I, you know, when I was going to go a lot longer than that, you know, feel like I had managed the race well and had all those other factors dialed in. So those are the two goals is, you know, just push hard and see what I could do on the course, but also manage it well. Right on. When you were looking at Hellbender, um, you know, we talked earlier that your your mental um, framing of, of racing had changed. Um, were was being competitive still, um, you know, something that was in, in, maybe it was in the back of your mind, but being competitive or a specific time, were those factors at all, or was it just the two goals that you just stated? Um, I had that in mind, you know, to more towards the end of the race than anything else. You know, I, I didn't have a hard time goal in mind. The course had changed a little bit too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that actually, in some ways it's kind of good because then it makes it easier to not have a set time goal and just <laughs> go out and try to have a good race. Um, you know, I figured if I had a good day out there and could run well, I was hoping to you know have a podium finish, but I tried to really, you know, start conservatively, try to, you know, really take it easier at the start, finish stronger, and then see where that put me. Nice. Nice. Um, so, uh, you know, as the race goes on there, there was so, so much that changes <laughs> throughout, you know, so, um, you know, how were you, um, were you interested as the, the race progressed as to where you were, were you asking or, you know, were people telling you <laughs> where you were? Yeah. So I knew, I, I knew pretty early on where I was. So I was, um, probably in fifth or sixth at mile 20 or 25 but i just felt amazing going up snooks which might not be a common thing to say but i felt great (laughs) going up snooks uh which i guess is what the second big climb of the race Mm -hmm. coming out of mile 25 i felt great and so i i knew i'd gotten into second there just because i'd seen everybody at the last aid station so i just i knew that's where i was i wasn't really stressed about or thinking about it i actually expected some people behind to catch up because i knew i just was having a i was just feeling good in that climb and expected people to catch up on the descent mm-hmm. um uh but yeah so I, I knew that then i so i basically knew where i was throughout but i wasn't i wasn't really stressing that and i figured you know what would happen would happen from there and just tried to stay on top of everything manage the weather manage the nutrition manage the gear and work through all that that's fantastic that race is uh it's very vert focused in the front end of the race, uh, which, you know, is, is something you had been training for. Um, with that said, you know, the back end being a little bit faster and more runnable, um, you still performed extremely well. Um, talk about that back half and how that, you know, how that went. Um, did you feel more confident as the race went on or, you know, having that vert on the front end and then the more runnable half, were there any questions in your mind? I felt pretty solid, really. Um, I would say it's probably the hundred where I've had that I just felt the best overall throughout. Mm-hmm. So I just I didn't have any bonks. I felt good. I kept getting a ton of calories in. The legs kept working. So you know, just <laughs> no no drama. It was just a that's great. A good day. It went well. I mean, the weather was, I guess, the drama for the day, but that was fine. I had my gear with me and <laughs> it was warm enough out there, so that was okay. 
but yeah, it's interesting, right? Because as you said, you get just a ton of climbing by mile 60. And then you have a lot of, you have a lot of fire road. You have mm-hmm. a lot of very runnable terrain. Um, and I was able to move, I think, decently well on that terrain. Um, I will say coming down heartbreak, my legs were, were a little shot on that. <laughs> <laughs> coming down, that's a steep, uh, what, like six mile? Yes. 4,000 yeah. foot descent at mile 95 or so. Um, so I felt that. I definitely felt that, but it was good. Yeah. I felt, I felt good throughout and was able to, you know, still run where I needed to run and, and move well through. Um, had, had you jockeyed with anybody in those, those miles leading up to that, or were you kind of just by yourself at that point? So, um, there was a guy who caught me around Mount Mitchell going out. So okay. mile 40. Mm-hmm. And he put some time on me up on um, you know, Black Mountain Crest Trail. Um, and he was actually ahead of me by 20 to 30 minutes, I think. And then in that section, actually, so when you come back up close to Mount Mitchell, Buncombe Horseshoes Trail, then you descend down. I think I made up most of that time on that section. And I actually got back to um mile 78 pretty close to him and he ended up actually dropping there so i actually was kind of looking forward i, I didn't have anybody to run with in you know hours, <laughs> hours of hours. so i was kind of looking forward to some company um yeah i guess he he uh, ended up dropping there so hmm. i was mostly alone so he went by me at mile 40 but otherwise i was pretty much solo most of the that's race. that's a interesting point you didn't have any pacers i did not no pacers no crew Wow. Um, you were going at it solo. Um, is that something that you were taking into consideration because of tour? Tour, can you have pacers at tour? For the most part, no. There's some relaxed Italian rules on some sections <laughs> where people will jump in around the towns, but for the most part, no. No. So was that part of the consideration for Hellbender? Um, was trying to be a little bit more self-reliant? Um, I actually generally run without pacer and crew um for for most races the exception i i have always had crew at utmb which i found really helpful given the european style aid stations just having somebody who can basically bring food that's not a charcuterie plate for me is super (laughs) helpful (laughs) um so it's been really important at that race and actually my crew was um you know we can get to that i mean they were massively important a tour race wouldn't have happened without them but yeah, for hundreds, you know, Hellbender has fantastic volunteers. You have a lot of drop bags. That makes the logistics pretty straightforward. So yeah. Yeah. it wasn't, wasn't too hard to do it that way. Good. Cool. Um, and, uh, you know, again, a fantastic finish. Um, you were second? Third? Yep. Second. 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 Um, just incredible. Jonathan had an amazing race. Um, you know, so it's, it's not to take anything away from him, but you you ran extremely well. Um, it was, I was so impressed with, well, both of you, well, all, all of our finishers, especially <laughs> this year's weather. Um, yeah. but, um, coming off that, that must've felt pretty darn good. Um, yeah, I, I would hope that would have uh, been a great confidence booster. No, it was, it was a good confidence boost, you know, both having a good day and, you know, second place and a good time, but also just the fact that I just felt good throughout mm. and it didn't have any low points. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of notes I took of things I got away with that I wouldn't <laughs> gotten away with if the race kept going. So anything specific? 
Uh, foot care was one. Yeah. So I had some, I did have some foot issues where the insoles of my shoes because of the wet weather, I think were something yeah. and bunching up at the front of my feet. Um, what shoe was that? I started in the ultra glides, Solomon okay. ultra glides, yep. which, which worked great for me, but I have had this problem when it gets wet, where that insole comes loose. Okay. And I should have changed them out earlier because I had the speed cross there, but I didn't do that until, you know, mile 70, 75. And okay. once I changed into those, it was fine, but did some damage and definitely realized I need to take care of the feet sooner. I need to do it immediately if something happens because right. if the race keeps going for multiple days, I wasn't going to get away with it. Yeah. Um, that was one big takeaway. I was trying to take notes of when I felt like I would be at a good point where I could sleep because that was what I was most worried about for tour. Sure. Um, and I felt like probably about two in the morning. Um, I forget the name of the aid station that you hit. That's about 15 miles from the finish. In Hellbender? Yeah. Curtis Creek? One after Curtis Creek, I think. Uh, Salto. Yes, Salto. I remember going through Salto being thinking... I could probably sleep here. You know, it's two in the morning. I'm sleeping, so that's a good mental note of you know what what time I could plan to sleep for the race. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But those are the main ones. You know, it's mostly just you know that foot care and taking care of that. Okay, cool. Um, so between Hellbender, obviously you took a little bit of respite after Hellbender, but um, you know, what did your training from Hellbender to Tour? What did that look like? So I did have a pretty quick turnaround to go out to Bighorn. Mm. And um, <laughs> Hellbender was definitely the A race for the first half of the year. So I knew I wouldn't have enough time to recover from Hellbender or take time off and build back up to Bighorn. What I really wanted to do there, though, was just get some time at altitude and mm. have that be the other piece of the puzzle just to see how that worked, how was my nutrition at altitude. So, you know, um, Bighorn, you spend a lot of time between seven and 9,000 feet. So I did that uh, six or seven weeks after Hellbender. So I had, you know, recovery, a couple of weeks of training and taper into Bighorn. Okay. Um, aside from the um, experience at, at Elevation, anything else behind that? Were you trying to get a, a hard rock qualifier or anything? Uh, the, the main reason was... Um, the Virginia Happy Trails crew had a whole bunch of people out there. So we had... <laughs> We had a bunch of people. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So that was you okay. know, a little party atmosphere out there. So <laughs> I had a hard rock qualifier, but um, yeah, that's what drew me to that one. Okay. Everybody. That's fair. Were there any other races uh, between uh, Bighorn and Tour? No. So while there were races I wanted to do, I deliberately shut it down just to be able to have a consistent about 10-week training block and just not have to worry about taper or recovery. So recovered from Bighorn, you know, pretty quickly, and mm -hmm. then just had ten weeks of focused training for tour. And was that primarily volume based? Did you do anything differently aside from just kind of steady, you know, volume runs? Yeah. So you know, early in the year, I kind of kept doing good amount of intensity. So you know, I had I mentioned early Jan Feb, but I kept doing you know a lot of you know, higher and higher speed workouts. I kept that in the mix, but for that last 10 weeks, I really just focused almost hundred percent on vert. So, mm. so not even mileage or anything else. I just yeah. really wanted to find the steepest terrain I could find and right. just rack up as much vert as I could. 
uh, for those 10 weeks. And for three of them, um, we were over in Chamonix with the family. Nice. So we had a rescheduled trip from 2020 that we finally got to take. So we were <laughs> over there and that was fantastic just to be in that terrain, just right out the door, just yeah. able to get some really good training in out there. But that was, that was the focus for those 10 weeks. Sweet. And what did the max um, vertical gain look like for you for a week? I think I had one week where I did about, I think it was 34,000. Okay. And that was um, while you are in Chamonix or? Yeah, that was while we were there. Yeah. My rough goal was, you know, just to try to do about 200,000 over those 10 weeks. Wow. And just okay. stay pretty consistent with it. Nice. Nice. Um, so leading into tour, uh, there's obviously a lot of planning and, and looking at, um, you know, your, uh, your sleep stations, your, uh, your feed stations. Um, so did you try to formulate an idea? I mean, obviously you said you took notes from Hellbender when you were getting sleepy, but uh, based off of that, did you have a sleep plan? I did. So I'm uh, known for having probably way too many spreadsheets. So I had lots of spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had spreadsheets on, yeah, nutrition plan, sleep plan, pacing, Try to map it out. I mean, it's it's such a big course; it's hard to mm -hmm. hard to do. But I wanted to at least have a plan and then a couple of backups around the plan mm -hmm. as well going into it. But it's hard, and I tried to talk to as many people as I could and just get different advice. And it was it was amazing just how different the advice was. I would just get completely opposite because you know you have the life bases in the valley, and then you have mm -hmm. the refugios up on the mountain. And right. some people would say don't sleep in the life bases. They're noisy. They're crowded. Only sleep in the refugios. And then some people would say, you know, don't sleep in the refugios, only sleep in the life bases. So I <laughs> tried to, you know, parse it as best I could and get some kind of a plan going into it. And how did, uh, you know, based on your plan, how did the, how did the sleep go? Sleep went, um, for a while, it was going better than I expected. So I, I did decide, one debate too was, do I sleep the first night? I think a lot of people had pushed through the first night and recommended pushing through, but I thought it'd be helpful, even if I don't sleep a lot, just to get the body clock and just to try. So I, I did do about 15, 20 minutes, so very short, but I did fall asleep that first night. Um, and then I felt, I felt good, felt good through the whole first night, whole second day. And then on the second night, I ended up um, sleeping earlier than was in my plan because it was right before you started the hardest, toughest, longest, most remote section. And I hit the life base before that at about 10 p.m. So I planned to go until 2 a.m. I ended up sleeping there, which I think was good because I had a really good second night after that. And I stayed, stayed awake and felt solid all night. I did the same thing the third night. So I actually came into a life base and slept early, like actually 6 p.m. before that third night. So that's the part that went well. And then later into the third night, the wheels started to come off pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, did you have crew out there? I did. I had an amazing crew, um, guy named Christoph, who I met at, um, heard done that Table Rock mm -hmm. uh, mountain race. Mm-hmm. In North Carolina. So I met him there. He's, he lives in France, but he just happened to be in North Carolina for work. Okay. I met him in 2016. 
he lives like a couple hours from the tour course and he ran the race in 2018. Mm. He very generously volunteered to, you know, spend a week (laughs) crewing me throughout tour. (laughs) Um, and he was awesome. It's just, his knowledge too of the course, because it is kind of hard. It's not really clear where crew can go and where they can't go and what's accessible, mm. what's not. Mm. And so he was there. He did an amazing job crewing. Uh, and then my wife flew out towards the end of the race. So the race started Sunday and she got there on Wednesday for the last couple of days. Okay, cool. Um, how about uh, drop bags? You know, UTMB, we only get one. Um, what did drop bags look like for tour? So they have this uh, big yellow bag that they move for you between the six life bases. And so it's helpful because you can put a lot of stuff in there. Um, the downside is some hard sections. I mean, you may not see that bag for a full day, basically. Mm. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's so much, you know, that's where crew comes in is even if you have it all there, you have so much gear and layers and food and nutrition in this one gigantic bag, which is one compartment trying to like, you know, when you're tired and you haven't slept in forever, trying to manage that, that's where crew really comes in. So Christoph just kind of did all that basically, like he would get whatever I needed from that bag. He would sort it out. He'd pack it up after I left. So you have that drop bag that you hit six times and it roughly breaks into seven 50 K sections. So you, you kind of see it every 50 K. Okay. All right. And then between that, um, there are some crew accessible points and Christoph went to all, all of them basically that you could get to. And it's, again, it's a little tricky to know where you can and where you can get to. But um, I saw him quite a lot more than I expected. I, I only really expected him to come to the life bases, but he went to probably 10 other spots along the course, at least. Nice. Nice. Uh, what's, uh, you know, so, talking about your gear for a second, what size pack did you use? I used a 13 liter pack. Okay. And um, who made that? uh ud okay ultimate direction gotcha gotcha um did they have a mandatory gear kit no actually Mm -hmm. so tour is a bit of a wild wild west feel to it you know there's (laughs) the race as long and hard as it is like there's not really mandatory gear they don't put a gps tracker on you um you know there was some controversy this year with what happened at the end of the race with some of that and a lot of people having to get pulled off the mountain basically in some bad weather, but, um, but no, there's no mandatory gear and there's no, no GPS either. Interesting. I think that is interesting. Okay. So, um, you know, talk us, talk us through the, uh, the event itself. Um, my goodness, uh, you're, uh, I, I can, I can only imagine, I mean, you know, Bigfoot was, you know, kind of same time frame as, as you and, you know, thinking about when I was lining up, you know, I was, I think I was mystified more than anything about what the distance and, and what challenge lie ahead. Um, what did you feel or what did you, how were you mentally? What, what was your mindset, you know, kind of going into this? It's so hard to imagine, right? Like what's about to transpire. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's so long. Uh, it's such a big course. I've never had to deal with sleep in a race. So that was going to be completely new territory. I knew a lot of this race was going to be just new territory for me. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely terrified going in. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I tried to go in of just, you know, enjoy the experience. It's an amazing place. It's an amazing route. It takes you to places that you just couldn't really get to otherwise. Like there's so Mm -hmm. many just 
incredible remote spots that are just so beautiful. So I try to just really embrace that and just embrace the adventure and realize I would deal with things as they came and try to figure out how to get it done. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so, um, you know, as you said, uh, start in Cormier, um, and then, you know, leaving out of there, um, you're, you're off now on your adventure. Um, I can't, aside from doing UTMB, I just can't imagine because those peaks right out of there are just, <laughs> they're steep to start with. <laughs> so yeah. talk about just starting out. Like, you know, it's, I mean, <laughs> was there any running involved? Because <laughs> I, all I can think about when I'm standing in there is like looking up, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like that's every direction. You're just looking up to, to see, you know, so talk about that. Yeah, well, like UTMB, I mean, the race goes out and people just shoot off at like, you know, six minute miles, <laughs> which is mind boggling. So I, I did not do that. Um, Good. <laughs> but yeah, you run out through town, you have like a mile and a half. And then you hit just, you know, the first of many 4,500 foot climbs, super <laughs> steep up to 8,500 feet. Um, there was a bit of a bottleneck, you know, as you got the single track, but that was more than fine by me i mean i was not in any rush to be <laughs> blazing up this first mountain but uh i mean you know you kind of crest above tree line you have you know mont blanc or monte bianco right there and all these huge peaks around you just kind of a surreal moment that you're just going into this for 220 miles <laughs> uh my pole did break on the first climb oh. so that was not ideal the oh, uh the strap broke and then the pointy part on the bottom of that same pole snapped off oh my gosh so you know climb one i've got one pole that's useless at this point oh but gosh. You know, otherwise it was good and just you know <laughs> nice steady climb up and yeah that first day was just great i mean just beautiful scenery um my crew christoph he met me at the top he actually hiked up the second climb okay um and he was up at the refugio up there there's this beautiful refugio like right next to this huge glacier so I told him about the pole situation. So he was going to go try to sort that out before I next saw him. Um, but yeah, the first day was, I mean, we had, we also had beautiful weather. So we had really for the first three days, blue skies, just great temperatures, beautiful weather, which I was pretty pumped about, you know, yeah, it's nice to have, be able to see these amazing mountains when oh, you're there. Absolutely. So yeah, for sure. Be able to enjoy that and enjoy the views for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I, just regret about utmb is that i felt like i spent more time in the dark than i did in the light <laughs> so um yeah. that's that's great that you got to enjoy it um so how did uh christoph resolve the the poll for you christoph is a man i mean he just <laughs> he just nailed everything so he ended up so i met him at the top of the second climb and in about four hours was going to get to the first life base okay he got down that climb, which is like a 5,000 foot descent. So he goes down that descent, <laughs> drives to Cormayor, goes into this uh, little sports store, and they fix it with spare parts wow. for free. So he oh gets the fixed, goes and picks up pizza for me, drives all <laughs> the way out to this next life base, and is just there ready to go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We all need Christoph. It's incredible. Uh, there is seriously that's that's incredible so you got your you're now back to two poles um and uh you're uh, uh let's see so now you're how far into the race about 50k 
Yeah, about 50K. You know, the section before the third climb was harder. Than, that was when I had not done. I had done the first two climbs before. Okay. Um, the third climb was, it was very tough. And I definitely intentionally dialed back the pace quite a bit because I realized it's just too early to be, mm-hmm. you know, feeling anything but really good. And so I just need to mm-hmm. dial back the pace. Mm-hmm. Which worked well. So yeah, I got into 50K. I was actually up on my plan splits. I got there in nine and a half hours, maybe. We'd done 12 or 13,000 feet of climbing. I felt good. Um, Nutrition was on. Yeah, so I got to the first life base. Some of them had a thing where your crew couldn't be where the food station was. So I had to go and basically got the pizza from Christoph. So I, you know, an entire pizza, drank a protein shake. ate a bunch of other stuff, drank a ginger beer, went to Kristoff and got ready for the first night. Nice. Uh, what did your, your lighting situation, what did that look like? What were you using? I had the Petzl now uh-huh. just with a backup USB battery. Um, it was great. I never had to, you know, like a, one battery got me through every night. Nice. And um, did you so use I a waste light or anything? No, you know, the course is pretty well, like a lot of times you're above tree line. So you just don't really need as much lighting. Um, and then there was also, especially for the first night, there was just this full moon that was out. Oh, cool. So it was amazing. Like you're about tree line, full moon in the Grand Paradiso National Park. <laughs> you can see the moon just reflecting on the glaciers around you. And I actually turned my headlamp off sometimes on that first night. Just it was such a cool atmosphere. Were there many running, runners around you for that first night? Uh, it started to thin out, but there are still a decent number of people. Um, I had a kind of theme throughout the race where I would move really well on the uphills on the climbs, and then I would either hold place or lose a little bit on the downs. So I, I tend to be around more people on the uphills because I'd be, you know, steadily passing some people mm-hmm. and then usually on my own for the downhills, but yeah, there's still, still some people around. No. Um, so, uh, when, at what point during that night, you said you got a little sleep that night. When, when was that? So I, so the, the first night, um, in that second section is, uh, it's actually, it's a tough section. It's just three climbs, but they're all between five and 6,000 feet of climbing. Um, you go to the highest parts of the course. A lot of it's between like 10 and 11,000 feet. Okay. You really just have these like three big climbs and these two towns that you hit in between the three. And so it was in the second town, which I got to, when did I get there? Three in the morning maybe give or take that yeah. I took a nap there. Okay. Right on. Um, but, but that night went well. People kind of usually say they feel pretty, pretty terrible after that first night. Just they're huge climbs, really steep descents, 16,000 feet or so over the 50 K section. Um, but I actually had a, I had a good night. I felt pretty, pretty nice. good throughout. Were um, was sleeping on the side of the trail, like dirt naps, were they discouraged or was that, that okay it was okay i think they mildly discourage it but if it's not for too long they don't seem to mind and there's no gps tracker on you so yeah. nobody would really know right um, but yeah so I, where i slept the first night was in a tent you know that this aid station in this town they had a tent with some cots set up so i just laid down for 25 minutes there were there any dangers aside from like you know cold <laughs> um out on the trail I mean, some of the terrain itself is dangerous and hard to believe, like 
they're actually taking you over some of this terrain. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, on that section, there was this descent. So you got to the high point of the course, or actually a little before that, but it was like a 2,000 feet of descending in a mile on, you know, some pretty loose scree that, you know, you're hitting at nighttime. Um, and there's a couple other sections later on in the race that are, yeah, hard, hard to believe that anybody's taking you over that terrain. <laughs> and pretty dangerous. I had to take a couple of falls later too. Oh. Um, so yeah, some of the terrain is... Can be pretty high consequence you have some rope sections with some cliff edges wow so you gotta yeah. be paying attention absolutely uh was language a barrier at all for you definitely is yeah a lot of that area um especially as you get more into the course yeah. doesn't they don't speak english typically sure um, i have a little bit of french that actually got me further than anything i tried to learn some italian you know i, I didn't know a ton but i would try a little bit but you know French actually, because most everybody there speaks French and Italian because it used mm. to be part of France. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, French was helpful. Uh, my crew, Christoph, so he's French, so that helped too. You know, he was able to navigate language for me as well. Nice, very nice. Um, how I mean, you, you talked about earlier how the the food <laughs> um, can also be a problem. Um, you know, at, at the uh, the life station and such. Uh, how was it in this race? I think there's a little more variety, but it still was definitely a challenge. Yeah. And I, I really tried to plan on bringing as much nutrition as I could, recognizing it's just a lot to carry. So I, I wouldn't be able to get all of it, but I tried sure. to get as much as I could. Um, I would probably take probably close to 2,500 calories on each of those 50K sections with me mm -hmm. and then supplement from there. Um, I was just, I was really hungry. I just needed a lot of calories the whole yeah. time. Like, yeah, I think the, yeah. yeah. The climbing and the course, like I was going through a lot of calories and that it was hard to keep up with that. Yeah. I would definitely feel better at the start of a section. And then as my nutrition ran out and I kind of struggled more with the aid stations, I'd feel a little more depleted towards the end of the, of, the, of that section. Mm -hmm. um, but the aid stations, I mean, they have, they have fruit, they have pasta, they have soup, um, chocolate, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Just not the, you know, what I ended up having my crew bring me, uh, he brought me a lot of like pizza and focaccia and that kind of thing. So that's, that was really helpful to supplement that and get that as much as I could. Nice. Nice. So, um, you know, we're, let's look at, let's look at the first hundred here. Um, any other challenges that popped up within that, that distance? Uh, so day two ended up being hard. So that was mile 70 to hundred basically. And it was the third of the seven sections. Um, it was it was hot that day and you actually mm. get to some lower altitude you have this huge descent like a nine thousand foot descent Holy takes God. you down to a thousand feet in the valley wow it was hot and then they had one refugio that was you know typically an aid station that was closed mm. this year I, I don't know why but that was closed mm -hmm. so we had this section it was just you know, kind of baking sun you're at altitude it was really hot it was about five hours between aid and i just I bonked pretty hard. I was, <laughs> I was really dehydrated. I was just, you know, low on everything. And it just, it was hard to catch back up from that. Yeah. Um, so I had to really stop at a couple of aid stations in a row and really kind of sit and take some time and try to refuel. Cause I got, I got way behind in that section. I think a lot of us did, like I was running with, um, you know, a few other people, the guy James from the UK and like 
we were all just miserable and <laughs> struggling <laughs> through that section. Um, but was able to pull around. So I, you know, I kind of dug out of that hole and actually felt pretty okay by the time I finished that third section. But that's part of why I slept earlier on the second night. It's just, you know, that section took a little longer just yeah. because of that. And then yeah. just wanted to really make sure I got back to feeling good again before the next section, which was the hardest one on paper. Okay. And um, was there any places to to filter or anything like that? Uh, there was one maybe where I could have, but I didn't, I didn't bring anything just because they were supposed to, you know, in, in theory, you're kind of hitting spots often enough that you wouldn't need to. So I didn't. And maybe that's a good takeaway is to have that as well. Um, Cause there was, I think one spot where you could have filtered. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, did you notice any of the other runners, were they filtering at all? Uh, I know, I think James risked it and just drank from it because <laughs> <laughs> figured that'd be a problem down the road and yeah, right. badly. Yeah. But I, I didn't see any other runners having filters with them. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, um, so you, we've got, yeah, like I said, you got into the second night. You kind of took an early sleep just because that section was tough. Um, this fourth section, you, you just mentioned that it was the toughest on paper. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so that section is, um, you know, again, it's about 55K, oh, sorry, 50K, maybe a little longer. It's uh, probably the most technical running, okay. most rugged and technical it's also the steepest section. I think it is something like, I don't know, 18,000 feet in 50K wow. or something like that. Whew. You start with one. So, you know, I mentioned you kind of go down to a thousand feet. Right. And Donas, which is the third life base. And then you have a 8,000 foot climb out of there or something <laughs> like that back up into oh, the mountains. So that's what you start with. And then after that climb, like it doesn't look that bad but it's just very steep, continual, you know, 1,500, 2,000 feet climbs and descents. Um, and, you know, you've got a lot of miles on your legs at that point. So yeah, sure. that's a notoriously tough section, probably the one people are probably the most feared section going in. Um, for the most part, it went better than I expected. I think because I took that stop at Donas, you know, I slept, I showered, I ate, I came out. I started back up again around midnight. And I felt good. Like I felt solid. So I had that first big climb, that 8,000 foot climb back up. Um, kind of nice with the time zone. I was able to, you know, call, call the kids and then I called my parents and, you know, I was able to cell phone reception. So I was kind of had people to talk to, keep me company out there. Um, and then as day two or sorry, day three broke. Um, so I kind of got back up to that high point. And then a little bit after that, after Refugio Coda, we had sunrise on the third day, which was beautiful because now we were getting close to um, the Matterhorn in Monte Rosa. And so just amazing, beautiful landscape. But the tail end of that section, so I felt good for a lot of it. But at the end, the same thing happened. I, I'd kind of run out of my nutrition. You know, I was out of my powders and gels, starting to bonk. And then the last stretch of that um coming into neil was just like a brutal not even trail like kind of like scree field and you're kind mm. of like traversing across a scree field on a mountain pretty high consequence like yeah it's not 
fun, slow moving. And <laughs> then this kind of ravine that you have to go down through this like really rocky, narrow ravine. And I fell twice there once actually like pretty hard on my right hip. Um, so that was a struggle to get down. And then I kind of was kind of bonking again and had to regroup a little bit when I saw my man, Christoph at Neil. So he helped sort me out a little bit. So overall, the section went well, you know, I think, I think usually if you can get that under 20 hours, like, you know, you call it a good day. I think I did it in like 17 and a half. So I was, I was on yeah. schedule, um, but it was tough. I, you know, yeah. definitely like I paid for it towards the end. How are your feet holding up at that point? We were doing okay. Yeah. I ended up only changing shoes once. Yeah. Only once at Donas. So the night before I would change socks at most of the life bases, but the feet were holding up. I would say at this point, this is where, you know, I, I kind of got to the point where I just couldn't really wrap my mind around things anymore. You know, mm -hmm. like I look at my watch and be like, you know, I've done 125 miles and 50,000 feet. And I have like, two days or more left. So, like I just couldn't, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I just kind of broke my brain. I was like, I just have to turn my brain off and just move, eat, yeah. sleep. And I just kind of went into kind of a zone of just, you know, shutting off my brain and just trying to keep moving forward. Basically. Did you do anything to try to remind yourself to, to keep eating on an interval or just, Whenever you <laughs> were like, oh, I probably should eat something. <laughs> yeah, I did okay with that. Like when I had it with me, yeah, I was doing okay with that. I mean, I was pretty steadily every 20 to 30 minutes probably. And was it pretty easy to follow the, I mean, you said that, you know, there, there's two trails, but was it pretty easy to follow the course? Yeah, the, cor the course is good. The course is well marked. Um, I didn't have any trouble. Yeah, it was, it was well marked throughout. Um yeah, I had the GPS on my watch too if I needed it, but I didn't really have to rely on that too much. Nice. Uh, over that type of duration, uh, I imagine you probably had to charge <laughs> the watch to keep it going. So I just got the uh, Vertex 2 mm -hmm. before the race. Yep. And I didn't recharge it at all, and it was still at 37% when I finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. Very cool. Um, well, awesome. And so, um, you got through the, you know, that, that tough section that had to feel good to put it behind you. Um, what did you have to look forward to in the next section? <laughs> the next one. So I could kind of only study so much of the course. So the next one I didn't pay as much attention to. So mm. it was a bit of a, bit of a surprise, <laughs> <laughs> probably good in retrospect, but yeah. So I got to the, the Gressonet at the end of that section. And I did sleep again there. So that was like 6 p.m. Okay. Um, but I figured, you know, I, I've been going nonstop for that 17 and a half hours. I figured sleep, get some food, get ready before I go back out into the night. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, start of the night went was great. I kind of met up with uh, a French guy and his crew. So okay. I mentioned like you can't really have pacers, but they'll let like your family and crew join you for like the mile or two coming into and out of towns. Sure. Um, which is kind of fun. So I was actually hanging out, talking with his crew. They live out there, you know, in the French Alps. And that was just kind of a fun moment, just hanging nice. out with them for a little bit. Uh, how much and, sleep did you get? Uh, I only got about an hour. So I, I oh, okay. set my alarm for longer. Um, and this happened two times in a row, but I had to wake up 
and wake up to pee basically oh. <laughs> and the way it's set up is like by the time i got there and like got back i was like i'm, I'm just awake at this point so mm. got cut a little bit short which i think i paid for later but um yeah so at this point i slept uh like two hours and 20 minutes basically over the first two nights gotcha Okay. Um, so, you know, we started up this next big climb, which I didn't know how long it was going to be. And, you know, ended up being about a 5,000 foot climb because that's what tour does. <laughs> <laughs> and then just on the other side of that climb, as we were going down, they start a 130 K race in the life base. I just passed at 9 PM. And so that's when the front runner started to catch me, <laughs> uh, which well, was kind of fun, right? Cause at that point I was pretty alone on the course mm. for the most part. So it's kind of nice having more people around and, you know, woke me up a little bit and it was fun, you know, just talking with them and, and they're all, you know, very encouraging and they knew we'd been out there for a long time and uh, were very kind. So that was fun. And, you know, had a big technical descent down to the next town, um, but the night was still going well up to that point. So I got to the next town like 11, 1130 p.m um Christoph somehow got there as well so <laughs> Christoph by the way slept less than me over the entire course of the race oh my gosh <laughs> he slept five and a half hours oh. over four nights just oh being out there just being a legendary crew um so he was there again with pizza in hand so I had an entire pizza at uh Champerluc. and then went up for the next big climb um still with a lot of these 130k runners around me and that's kind of where it all caught up and the lack of sleep hit me pretty hard going up that climb. I think it's my body realizing like, all right, we're going through a third night <laughs> trying to shut things down. So I tried doing a dirt nap. The, the challenge there was like, there were so many of these 130 K runners going by right? too much going on to really yeah. sleep very well. So we eventually got up to this next aid station or this uh, refugio up on the mountain. Um, it was pretty cool. It's like out in front of the refugio, they have these two like 20 foot poles that are parallel to each other, like four feet apart, all lined with these like three foot gigantic cowbells, like 40 <laughs> of these gigantic cowbells. And there's this guy like holding these two poles, like swinging all these <laughs> for all he's worth. And like, I just want to sleep. Right. And there's, you know, it's just like the loudest possible. Yeah. <laughs> So I go to this refugio and they have a, they have a little room and it was actually like, it was empty. It was quiet. It was empty. And for some reason I only slept for 10 minutes. Like it was oh. definitely a huge mistake looking back as it was like two in the morning. I could have slept. It was a perfect opportunity. And for whatever reason, my brain wasn't functioning well. Uh, I just got up and then left. Um, and I, it wasn't enough. And I was kind of just weaving on the trail and, Oh. took a dirt nap and you know, basically struggled a lot to get to the next life base, which, you know, um, so I got there at 6 a.m. So Valbrissange was the second to last, so I guess the other fifth life base. But I was definitely, you know, I was yeah. in pretty rough shape at that point and, and planned to stop for a while to like really get some sleep before the next section. Were you doing anything for caffeine? I did. I had some caffeine pills. Um, they seemed to, at that point, like eventually, I, I think they helped for a lot of the race. I think at that point, yeah, you know, they weren't as much. And I also don't want to take too much if I was about to, you know, try to go to sleep too. So right. 
it got right. a little tricky. I see. And so uh, how much sleep did you get at that next life base? So I wanted to sleep for two hours and that was the same. Had to pee, got up. <laughs> <laughs> I only slept for an hour, um, which was also not quite enough. But I stopped. So I stopped there. I showered again there. So I took a shower, slept for an hour, um, ate as much as I could. Um, but it was hard. It was hard to leave that life base. You know, I was I was pretty worked over at that point. It's 150 miles in, 60,000 feet. Next section was a big one. You know, it was getting, it was hard to basically push myself to get back out on the trail for that one. Were you questioning anything at that point or were you still okay? Uh, no, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was questioning. I think, you know, my motto that I came up with at some point was the only way out is through. So I just kept telling myself that like, there's no other option. The only way out is through. <laughs> You're not dropping. You're going to keep doing this. You know, I was, I was fine. Like I wasn't hurt. Right. I had right. tons and tons of time to finish the thing. Um, what is, what is the cutoff for, for tour? 152 hours. Wow. Man, that's a lot of time. <laughs> and this was like, oh, when did I hit there? Uh, 68 hours, maybe. Okay. Okay. And that was life base five. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Five. So you got, you got two more, two more, <laughs> two more life. One bases. more life base, two more, more stages. Yeah. Right. right on. Right on. So you're, you're getting there. You said you're at a hundred and 150 at this point. Yeah. 150, 155. Ish. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you still have about 65 to 70 miles. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hope, hopefully <laughs> you, were, you weren't thinking about that. <laughs> Try not to. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, right on. So, all right, keep us, keep us going here. Keep us rolling. Um, so our sleep, um, how were you, I, I gotta imagine your brain was getting pretty foggy. <laughs> yeah, I was getting pretty foggy. Um, yeah, this was another long section, a lot of climbing. I was doing okay. You know, I, I kind of got a lot of food in, on the first two refugios there, which seemed to help. There was a really nice guy young guy spoke English and uh, got me set up with a lot of food at one of them, which was awesome. Volunteers at tour, by the way, are incredible. Like there's just, the whole Valley is out there. Like they stop everything they do for a week and just support the race. It's amazing. That's cool. <laughs> um, like thousands and thousands of people wow. at all hours in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> helping us out. Yeah, it's incredible. But um, it's a really pretty section and um, you know, it kept just, kind of just pushing through, trying to make okay time. Ran into a really nice Belgian guy. So I ran with him. I think his name was Kurt. Ran with him for a while. So that was good. His English was excellent. So <laughs> languages. So it was fun running with him for a little while. Um, and, you know, one thing I was definitely looking forward to at this point was the next, not the next life base, the town before the next life base was okay. where I was going to see my wife for the first time. Oh, nice. Um, so she'd flown in, I talked to her on the phone, she landed, she was driving over. So that was a good driving factor of yeah, just get to Oyas and then I'll get to see her. That was good to have something at that point to look forward to. Yeah. So I'm kind of, you know, making my way through this next section. And then um, at the kind of two like two refugios before before Oyas, I took a short nap. Um, like 10 or 15 minutes 
but it was daytime, but I figured, you know, probably just good to do at this point. And when I got up out of the, uh, the cot there, like I felt this twinge in my calf. Mm. Um, I, I had various, you know, little aches and pains that had come up and just either went away or the brain was just shutting off the signals or you know, whatever it was. But as I, as I kept going, it kept getting worse and kept getting tighter. And I was, I tried to stop, I tried to stretch it, but it just kind of kept getting worse and worse. And so then we got to the next really small kind of bivouac aid station. That's another amazing thing about the race is like they airlift these bivouacs on tops of mountains for <laughs> aid stations where there's just nothing else around. It's, it's incredible. It's like nine or 10,000 feet. And there's just like this bivouac that they airlift <laughs> there. Um, so I went through that and then there's this long, very long, it's like a 5,000 foot descent with a lot of runnable terrain. And everybody talks about how terrible this downhill is because like, <laughs> you should run it, but you can't run it. And so as I'm going down, like the calf is just getting worse and worse and worse and it gets tighter and tighter. And then it starts spreading up like the MCL into the hamstring. And I'm kind of getting to the point, like I can't bend my leg anymore. And I got to a pretty gradual part of the course at the second half of this downhill. And I, you can't really walk. Like I'm hobbling and I kind of go from, I'm, you know, pretty tame terrain, especially by tour standards. I go from, you know, 30 minute miles to 40 to 50. And then I'm like slower than a mile per hour and in a lot of pain. And like, it feels like I've you know basically strained my calf. Um, I think looking back the fall that I took on that really technical section, um, the day before, mm-hmm. I think I probably did something then and, you know, it just was popping up and I was feeling it a bit later, but you know, anyway, I was, I was kind of not doing well. That's definitely when like, I don't think I can do this. Um, I'm just in too much pain. I can't really walk on flat terrain, let alone go up these huge mountains. I think I'm going to have to quit. So I called Christoph, called my wife, Jen. It's like, you know, I'm okay. Right. I'm still moving. I'm coming down, but I, I don't, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can keep going. It's just too painful just to even walk at a super slow pace on flat ground. Um, can you guys come meet me? Cause like, you know, come up the town. Sure. And like, I'll be telling them I was going to quit. I was done. Um, you know, come get me, <laughs> take me out of here. Uh, I don't think I was actually ready to quit really, but um, even though I was saying it, like I, I wasn't ready yet, but I just didn't know what else to do really. Um, so that was a scene as I kind of got to Oyas and saw my wife for the first time. She was at the intersection of the trail and where the town was. And I was, I was in a rough spot and kind of limping and hobbling my way in there. Gotcha. And so, uh, man, I, I, I've been there and that is really tough because you can see the look on their faces <laughs> when you come in and it's, it's even more wrenching because you know, they're, they're upset because you're hurt. So, um, I, so you get into town. Um, what did you guys do? How did they try to, how to help you? So, you know, Christoph was super calm, very like patient, but also very insistent of like, there was no dropping happening. <laughs> we're going to go, they have a medic there. We're going to go see the medic. Yeah. You have, you know, infinite time at this point, basically. So let's just go. Like, we'll go down to town. We'll, we'll see the medic and then we'll, we'll go from there. Um, but it was perfect. He was just very calm, very steady. It was just what I needed. Yeah. It, it was that like emotional thing of seeing my wife, like she just flew over across the country and I'm in this state. Right. So that's right. hard. Yeah. 
So I'm kind of hobbling in um, very slowly through town on the way down. They pick up an ice cream at the store before it closes. I come in, I see the medic, and this is a smaller aid station. So there's not the full medic staff. So there's a nurse who's there. Um, she gives me some some kind of painkiller. <laughs> and then um, it's like, what, what time is this? Probably nine o'clock at night, maybe. Okay. So we call back home to the PT who I see pretty regularly just to get her opinion too. Um, yeah. Part of what I want to do is, you know, I just don't want to, don't want to get into a dangerous situation because I, I knew it was coming up on the course and there's two mountain passes, one of which is, you know, very serious technical roped terrain. So, you know, job number one is don't do anything really bad here. Right. Yep. She was pretty encouraging. Yeah. She was like, well, if it's really a muscular strain, you can keep going. It's, it's going to suck. It's not going to be fun, but it's not, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily dangerous. So we said, look, let's just take a lot of time here. We have tons of time. So let's just regroup. So we saw the medic. So look, I'll just go. I haven't slept in a while. Um, go get some sleep, stay here, try to get food and just see where we are. So I ended up, um, I fell asleep. I was kind of wondering like, man, when I wake up, is this thing going to be even stiffer and even worse, which usually is what happens with this kind of thing. So I, I go to sleep. Um, I didn't even set an alarm. I didn't even tell anybody when to wake me up. <laughs> I just passed out in the spot. <laughs> and I slept for what I thought was a really long time. And I woke up and I asked my wife, like, how long was I sleeping? And she's like, not quite an hour, <laughs> which blew my mind. And, you know, it felt a little better, actually. Um, and so then we figured, well, let's sleep a bit more, see if that helps it. We had a like little portable Theragun and stick roller. So my poor wife kind of helped try to massage that out while I was trying to sleep a bit more. So I slept about two and a half hours there. Um, and then felt like I felt okay. You know, it still was stiff. It still was tight. Mm -hmm. We, um, so I ate a bunch of food, went back to the medic and she, you know, she said she's not the expert in this, but she taped it up as best as she could. Sure. And I knew the next seven miles was actually like, not crazy terrain like it was you know steep trails but it was all in the woods and so i figured okay well, let me just go and see how it goes so i was probably there for almost almost three hours at that stop and then got taped back up and went back into the night and you know it held up pretty well so I, you know it actually was okay for that next section got to the next life base where they had the full medic crew. And <clears throat> so they did, you know, some deep tissue work on it and, you know, taped it up fully after that. And then, you know, tried to give it a go, see if it would hold up for the rest of it. Did they have any limitations on how long you could stay within uh, a life base or an aid station? So life bases have no limitations. Um, the aid stations are supposed to kick you out after two hours. Okay. But um, apparently, because there's also 130K runners in that, and they were actually kicking them out after about a half an hour. Okay. And I guess somebody came over to ask about me, but then some of the aid station folks who had seen what state I was in before kind of shushed them away and said I could stay <laughs> they wanted, which was very nice of them. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was able to stay there as long as I needed to. Oh, that's good. Good. Uh, so after you saw the, uh, the full medical staff, now you're kind of taped up and and <laughs> prepared to move on um was it 
was it feasible to to move? Were you able to get some some flexion back in your knee and and able to to move a little bit better? It was a lot better. I was surprised that you know that felt pretty decent. You know the sleep and duct tape and painkillers seemed to do enough that <laughs> I could kind of move again. And so I left there uh, at the end of the fourth night at six a.m. and um, had, had so I had the one last section left. So one yeah. last fifty k section. 12,000 feet or so. So I was going to give it a go. Um, and it, it felt pretty good when I got up to the top of that first big climb coming out of there, when it got steeper, I could definitely feel it kind of twinging and tightening up if I tried to, you know, push too much when it was steeper. Mm-hmm. So I, I did have to back off the pace a little bit, you know, on the steeper uphills and on some of the downhills. So I tried to just back off where I needed to. And it, it pretty much held together the last 10 miles or so. It, it really tightened back up and got more painful, but, you know, we were kind of coming back. We kind of got back to that UTMB terrain, but on that um, ridge in Italy between Refugio Bertoni and Bonatti. And it was, you know, tame enough terrain that I was able to just, you know, keep moving on it, but it did for the most part hold, hold up pretty well. Nice. Nice. So anything else in that last section? I mean, I'm glad that the calf was able to hold up. Um, yeah. <laughs> um you got some sleep too that had to be wonderful um so and you left at at 6 a.m 50k to go twelve thousand feet how long did that section take you that last section so i was really hoping to finish it in daylight so i didn't know if i had another night in me <laughs> sure yeah yeah uh so i was kind of doing the math on that so you, you go up the first big climb and then there's actually you know, it's like the one runnable section in tour. It's like a five mile stretch, gradual downhill on fire road. <laughs> you hit it like mile 195, right? And it's like <laughs> so runnable. So Christoph is like, you got to run that section, like, run that section, move through it, and then you can get this thing done in daylight. So I, you know, did my best and put up my 13 minute miles running down that thing. Uh, I saw them again. So there was another major town. 18 miles from the finish that I saw them at. Um, so I stopped there, you know, refueled kind of middle of the day, um, but, you know, got some good food in me there. And it was funny. So I was leaving that section and the next time I'd see them was going to be at the finish in Cormayor. And as I was leaving, I was like, okay, well, next time I think it'd be good to have this and that, if you can bring this and, you know, if we can do this gear change and they're like, well, you're done next time. Like You're going to be finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, that was just like the mode my brain had been in, right? There was yeah. like, <laughs> you couldn't think about the finish for so long because it was too far away. Yeah. But now it's getting the point. It's like, wow, I actually might do this yeah. thing and actually finish this. <laughs> uh so this the last climb going up um was beautiful. And you kind of go up to this last <clears throat> high altitude pass. I ran by these two guys from the UK. So the other thing people do is they'll kind of run the course in sections in reverse, just cheering for people, which is awesome. So these two guys who had seen me, you know, back when I was fighting the calf stuff at that stop we went to, uh, they were so nice. They're like, we can't believe you're still out here and you're still you're great. And I was like, thanks guys. And so they were, they were, um, they were awesome to see out there, but yeah, I made it up to that last pass. It was actually pretty cold and rainy up there. Um, you know, so it kind of got down to the thirties, you know, and some rain coming down on this very technical, you know, ropes alpine section and that's where i guess about the next day 30 hours later 
they had a ton of snowfall there. Wow. And the last, uh, so the 200 runners that were still out on course got stopped before that pass at a refugio and they canceled the race and they um, took them off the mountain in small groups with mountain guides wow. and took people to the finish that way. As far as I know, luckily everybody was safe, but you know, there are a lot of people up at that terrain without, because again, there's no mandatory gear. They, yep. they kind of didn't know the storm was coming and um, yeah, it could have been a, could have been a problem, but yeah, I got over the mountain pass and just tried to get myself to the finish as the cap uh -huh. was tightening up at that point. Uh, Christoph went up the last climb, so that's a lot of, a lot of crew did that too. Yeah, uh, just to join me for the last couple miles coming into town, which was awesome. Um, one question that arises um, when you were at the the refugio um, were those folks? Did they have any access to be able to to see the weather? or what was coming in and be able to communicate that to the runners. Or, I mean, I know that reception isn't always the greatest, um, but was that something that you were able to, to access? I think most of refugios did. Yeah. Most of them would have had some cell service. Um, I remember having it for most of them. So yeah, they would have had access. And I think what happened is I think the refugio Either they got it word from the race or they just made the call themselves because that refugio before the mountain pass is where they stop people. Gotcha. When things gotcha. are getting dangerous. Yeah. Right on. Um, so um, so you are making your way now towards uh the finish. You're you're coming back into uh Cormier. Um <laughs> it um it's funny, it's funny that you didn't recognize that you were you had already hit your last <laughs> um aid station. Um, but that just shows how focused you were on, you know, moving forward. Um, but that, that realization, um, talk about that last, that last piece. Um, what, what were, were you reflecting on the race? Were you looking, you know, thinking about the finish? What, what was going through your mind? Yeah, it was a pretty emotional finish for me, you know, just reflecting back of, you know, I've been dreaming of this race for 12 years now and, you know, it's actually going to happen and everything that I had to go through during the race and just some of the challenges of it. Also, just like how much support I got from people and, you know, this race especially, right? So Hellbender ran, you know, no crew, no pacer, but I mean, without Christoph and Jen and, you know, getting through that calf injury and without him being all over and not sleeping and bringing me food. And then you know, my in-laws who are watching the kids at home and, you know, all my training partners and, you know, Alex and Yana and Pat and everybody. So I definitely was thinking a lot about that because I think you probably see like a 200 is a, it's a different level of sacrifice for, for everybody involved. And it's just, it takes a lot of people to get you to the finish of that. It so does. it does. Uh, very grateful for that. And of course, you know, all the, the volunteers ahead on the course, but, um, yeah, I was just thrilled to thrilled to get it done. I was very happy to get it done in daylight. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, 6.40 p.m. So, you know, the town was full. People were out and, you know, cheering <laughs> on that last stretch through town, which was awesome. Uh, what was your uh, finish overall finish time? Uh, 104 hours. 104 hours. Oh, bless. And um, <laughs> where, where did that put you in the field? Yeah. Uh, so there's 1100 starters that put me 67th. Um, I was second American. I was hoping that I could be the top American. I was hanging on for a while, but uh, 
Mark Vogel took that honor this year when right I was up. Oh man. Well, it's incredible. Uh, it's <laughs> so amazing, man. That's a, you know, a definitely a, a bucket list race for so many people. Uh, would you do it again? Interesting question. So <laughs> during the race, I told myself, I told my wife, I said multiple times out loud, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and you know, you know how it goes, right? You finish and then you remember all the good parts and you kind of forget the really hard parts. <laughs> um, you know, coming back to it, it is a big sacrifice and does Absolutely. take a lot more. So if I, if I, if I do it again, like I, I won't do it soon. I'm not going to do it say next yeah. year. Right. There is something about the race that is, um, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, like it, it definitely embodies the best of what's in the sport, just in terms of the course, the ambiance, the volunteers, just the people there just love the mountains and they just love sharing their mountains with people. So like, it's definitely, I didn't kind of fully grasp all of that. I'd heard people who I knew ran it talk about just that aspect of it and uh, can definitely feel that. So it is appealing. Um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Uh, anything else that's on the bucket list or uh, on, the, on the docket for you coming up? Uh, well, hard rock, you know, like for many of us, it's sitting out in the bucket list. So for a long time, the, the main bucket list was UTMB tour and hard rock. So one of these days, uh, <laughs> we'll get that one. Um, there's a, there's a pretty cool race. They started last year that happens in Italy and Switzerland, um, somewhat overlapping with part of the tour course. It's like a hundred miles, 43,000 feet, um, and a lot of like beautiful terrain. So it's kind of like half a tour and that seems pretty interesting versus doing yeah. the full tour again anytime <laughs> soon. So yeah, maybe that one. And I just signed up for the canyons under mile. Oh, maybe. sweet. Awesome, man. Very good. Good luck on that. Um, and well, how can people find you or connect with you, Will? Uh, so you can find me on Instagram, um, Will to Run Coaching. Probably the easiest way. Cool. Uh, do you have room for folks if they're interested in coaching right now? Uh, I do. I do. Yeah. Awesome, man. Uh, so reach out through Instagram for that as well. Yeah, that or, uh, or the website, willtorun.com, which has also a very long race report, probably way too long race report from Tour de Géant. <laughs> I was going to put that in the show notes as well. So yeah. willtorunconaching.com? Uh, willtorun.com. Oh, willtorun.com. Okay. All right. I'll put all that in the show notes so people can connect with you. If they're interested in that. Will, thank you for sharing your story. That was incredible, man. I hope I didn't take up too much of your time. <laughs> no, I, I can talk to her all day, but uh, <laughs> no, it's a pleasure. And I also have my uh, hellbender salamander here, which has a, <laughs> yeah. a honor here in the office from this last year's race. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations on all of it, man. It's been a fantastic year. Uh, it's it's so incredible to hear your story. Uh, you know, Tour is definitely um, one of those bucket list races and amazing that you have both UTMB and Tour under your belt. That's so cool. So congratulations, man. Well, yeah, if you ever uh, jump into Tour, happy <laughs> to talk, happy to uh, through. I, I'd love to actually pay it forward and, you know, the amazing job that Christoph did and be able to do that for somebody someday. So, oh, well, be careful. That might be on the uh, 24 <laughs> docket. So I <laughs> uh, appreciate you. Will. thank you so much for, for everything. It's an incredible story. So fun to talk to you. All right. Thanks, man. It was a pleasure. Great to see you.
Once again, thanks to all my guests, Canyon Forest and Will. I want to thank them, uh, you know, and congratulate them each on their individual achievements and success. Uh, it's it's wonderful to hear these stories. Uh, I hope not only do they inspire you, but I hope they get you thinking. I hope they get you acting, and um, I hope they, they help you learn something and engage with you, connect with you. So uh, I hope to continue to have these kind of conversations. Again, my conversation uh, coming up will be with uh, Justin uh, uh Quintus and Justin just won the Mountain Masochist 50 miler. Uh, so uh, you may hear another episode with Justin. I know he is recording another one, um, but uh, I, I really look forward to this conversation with him and hearing his story. Um, and, um, you know, I hope to, uh, to connect with some, some new guests here. So if you know of somebody that, uh, you know, deserves an, an interview or uh, has something uh, that, you know, we can learn from, you know, please let me know, message me. Uh, connect with me and, and let me know. Um, happy to do so. Um, I felt like uh, you know I've been getting been getting a lot of uh, male guests on the episode. Uh, definitely need some some more female guests. Uh, so uh, please, uh, you know, uh, if you have somebody that's that's doing some outstanding things, uh, let's let's hear from them and um, and let's learn from them. So please let me know. Uh, I'm gonna try to rack my brain to to figure out some so we can balance this out a little bit. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, once again, thank you for, for being a part of this, for sharing this journey with me, for sharing others' journeys, and I hope you connect with them. And uh, until next time, my friends, keep running.